0: This episode is brought to you by the patrons of the Tube Podcast Network. Personal heroes of mine like the top three podcast crew, Chris Nelson, Zulgeek, Colby Moyer, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Jill, Kieran, new patron Ben, and many more have gone to patreon.com slash real Jackson and supported a top three podcast and tales from the backlog. I appreciate you very much. You are heroes of mine. You listener can be just like them by heading to patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson. You'll have my eternal gratitude and some cool treats. All right, on to the show. everybody, my name is Dave Jackson, and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog, a video games podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to talk about a game we played. My guest today is a friend of the show, co-host of the Switch It Up podcast, and the guy with the Gall, Colby Moyer. Welcome to the show, man.
1: Thank you, Dave. Uh, Really an honor to be on. I'm happy to be here and excited to talk about our, our game today.
0: Hell yeah, today we're gonna talk about Xenoblade Chronicles 3 which is a Japanese RPG. Why did I say Japanese? It's a JRPG developed by Monolith (laughs) Soft and published by Nintendo for the Nintendo Switch in 2022. And if you were on an elevator trying to pitch or explain what Xenoblade Chronicles 3 is to somebody, Colby, what would you say?
1: Well, I worded this kind of like a review, but I think this gets the point across. Uh, I would say... Even with some shallow mechanics, Xenoblade Chronicles 3 shines with incredible story, characters, world building, and evokes emotion out of all players that makes it worthy of the title for best Nintendo game in 2022.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
0: I would say that this is a kind of change in like the storytelling style of Xenoblade Chronicles uh, for longtime fans of the series, um, while still maintaining the same mechanics of the series for better or worse. Uh, so that's my elevator pitch. Uh, but I do agree with you, and we're going to get into this, I'm sure. But the story is really, really good. So um, speaking of the story, spoiler policy on this episode, this is going to be This is a weird one because this is a long-ass game. So where to draw the line for spoilers is a little bit tough. I'm going to give the basic world building in this episode. These are things that you learn within the first couple hours of playing and kind of the, the story hooks. But we're not going to go much further because this game does go in some really uh, interesting directions that I don't want to spoil for people. So that's going to be our spoiler policy today. And yeah, time to uh, before we get into Xenoblade Chronicles, um, I want to give you a chance to talk about your podcast, uh, which I said at the beginning is called Switch It Up. So um, I have a feeling that Xenoblade Chronicles <laughs> 3 is right in your wheelhouse at, on Switch It Up. But uh, oh, yeah. to explain for everybody what's going on there.
1: Switch it up is basically just a Nintendo centered gaming podcast, uh, started by me and my best friend Tyler three years ago when we were college freshmen. Now we're college seniors about to graduate. It's kind of come full circle that way. It's, you know, been, been a wild ride, but yeah, basically you're all things Nintendo podcast releasing sparingly these days because time is, you know, a bit of a crunch with me starting student teaching next semester and Tyler again, continuing the school. But you know, we have a good time doing it. It's it's a lot of fun. We just released an episode. At the time, of this isn't going to be out for a while, but no. <laughs> we released an episode. Released an episode the day that we're recording this. Uh, I think November fifteenth or fourteenth. One of those. It's one of those two days. But mm-hmm. yeah, just um, your all things Nintendo podcast hosted by two college kids, and we just we just have a really fun time doing it. So if that sounds up your alley, if you're here for a good time, uh, I think we have some good stuff over there for you.
0: Yeah. That's something that I would say about Switch It Up too. Is that you guys are very obviously having a good time talking to each other. There's, there is a quality that they cannot be imitated when two like best friends or really close people do a show together. The chemistry there is is unmatched. Um, I have that with my other show where I do it with all my best friends from high school. Uh, on this show, I talk to someone new each week, uh, so we get different flavor each week. But on Switch It Up, uh, this is what I. Um, I have prey on the brain because that episode drops tomorrow, but I talked to (laughs) Friday night Gamecast those guys about that too. Uh, When, when the host chemistry is really, really good, you guys are having a good time talking about, you know, whatever the subject is for the week. That's a, it's, it's good podcasting. So yeah, you guys are doing good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. So um, if you are somebody who uh, enjoys Nintendo games, if you want to hear more about Xenoblade Chronicles three, because if I, if my crystal ball doesn't lie to me, I think we're going to be hearing about that game a little bit more once Tyler finishes it, right?
1: Tyler, yeah, Tyler just got to the emotional climax of Xenoblade Chronicles 3. So (laughs) I think think he's taking a a mental day from playing today. But yeah, when we get done with that game, oh my God, it's going to be a long one, but I'm very excited to talk about it.
0: A podcast is in order for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, you're also doing something cool on Switch It Up, um, something not Nintendo related. Uh, with Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VII Remake. So what's going on with that?
1: Yeah, I started a passion project on Final Fantasy VII Remake, basically just a docu-series going through basically all the lore bits, big and small, from that game. Because uh, even for people who've played Final Fantasy VII, some people remakes their first experience into the entire franchise. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff you can miss if you aren't you know well-versed in all the compilation stuff, and not everyone has time to be well-versed in all the compilation stuff fortunately, you can tell by the sweatshirt I'm wearing today, uh, I am very well versed in the compilation stuff of Final Fantasy VII and have spent a lot of time learning about it and just very passionate about it. So that's a mini series I'm doing over there, basically just going through what Remake is trying to set up, what it's trying to tell and where it's going to go from the future. Uh, it's one of my favorite video games ever, both both original seven from 1997 and Remake from 2022. So when I have time to get that when I have time to work on that, it's something I've looked forward to very much. And it's a lot of work because solo podcasting is a lot harder than mm-hmm. I, I thought it would be, but I really <laughs> look forward to doing it. And I hope that people who listen to it get, get something from
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I listened to uh, the the first episode of it. I definitely got something from it. And I'm someone who's played a uh, remake. I played the original. Um, I, I appreciate people like following their passions as far as like, stuff they're interested in and putting out content that very obviously means something to them. So I'm enjoying that series too. I am uh, recommending everyone listening, if you're into Final Fantasy VII, if you're into uh, Nintendo and Nintendo Switch games and stuff, to check out Switch It Up. You'll find something you like.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And um, just real quick, I, I've been a fan of this show before I even got the chance to meet you. So uh, this is this is really cool experience for me. I just want to say thank you again. And i I've been a fan of the show for a long time and I appreciate all the work you do.
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate that too. Uh, as both of us know, this is podcasting is fun, but it's a lot of work sometimes. It is. So, some recognition feels good for sure. So, going both ways here, man. Um, let's get into Xenoblade. And we're going to start by talking about our histories with the Xeno series. Um, if we want to extend it all the way back to Xenogears, Gears, uh, but Xenoblade Chronicles as well, uh, Xeno Saga. Rick, that's for you, buddy. <laughs> if uh, if you played those games earlier in the series, what was your experience? And then what made you want to play Xenoblade Chronicles 3?
1: I have not played Xenogears or Xenosaga, but the more I learned about this game, the more I have heard about those prior ones and I've done research on them. So I know, I kind of have a general understanding of how it's all connected and how Takahashi just been, he's been working for a decade, two decades, basically trying to tell this this story of his, but I remember seeing definitive edition, Xenoblade Chronicles definitive edition in a direct, and I don't know why it just grabbed me right away, but it did. So that's, that was actually my introduction into the Xeno series was that game. Mm-hmm. And because it was released in 2020, I obviously missed Xenoblade Chronicles two, which I'm going to remedy that error because I have it now. I bought it right after I beat three, but mm-hmm. I've gone from Chronic, um, Chronicles one to Chronicles three back to two. So it's kind of, it's it's a mixed bag really. But, um, from what I can tell just after playing two games, uh, the Xeno stories are just so well-versed and, you know, so emotionally evoking. So I, I I think that holds true with three, one, and it's, I think it's gonna hold true with two as well, if the series is anything to go off of.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so I played Xenoblade Chronicles, the first one in twenty. maybe 2016, something like that. I played it on the Wii U and uh, I was like you, I I first heard of Xenoblade in Smash Brothers when Shulk was brought into Smash Brothers and I saw the level and I heard the music and I was like, what is this game? I got to play this (laughs) because the music, I mean, we're going to talk about the music, but Xenoblade music, Xeno music just goes incredibly hard all the time. And I was immediately hooked by that. So I played that back in the day. I got like ninety five percent of the way through it, and I I went up against a boss that I just couldn't beat, and I was like, I, I'm, I get it. I'm done with this. I'm gonna watch <laughs> the end on YouTube. So I uh, still haven't beaten that one. I played Xenoblade Chronicles two as soon as I got my Switch. That was one of the first games I bought, and I love that game. It's one of my favorite Switch games to this day. Uh, it was. Um, you were saying like you hope that the story continues what Xenoblade Chronicles one and three. Set up. I think it does. I think that game has an excellent story. So, long story short, Xenoblade Chronicles Three was an instant, no hesitation, day one buy for me. I'm all in on Xenoblade games. Um, this game took me 65 hours to beat. Um, I did most of the side quests that I found, but I, from what I understand and talking to people around, 65 hours seems like a low uh, hour count for this game. Um, even though I feel like I was Pretty thorough. You know, if I found a side quest, I generally did it. So, um, I never felt underleveled though. Uh, that's one thing I do want to make clear. So, 65 hours felt right to me. How long did this take you?
1: I'm at 65 hours right now, funny enough. But, main story, I played on easy mode and that really allows for exploration over, you know, challenging combat, as I'm sure Mm -hmm. we'll talk about. But, um, yeah, I think, um, 65 is a good number it took me about 40 45 to beat the main story so for last 20 hours or so i've been doing a bunch of quests which have given a lot of world building so i'm happy to go back and do them but yeah i'm mean, 65 uh, i took me i play i have 55 on xenoblade chronicles definitive edition so it feels feels like a good just like a good number
2: yeah
0: yeah these are not short games and uh, i've talked to some people um other people in our in our podcast group who are like, I just hit 150 hours in Xenoblade, I'm not done yet. And I'm like, Yeah, that makes sense, but god damn, that is a lot of <laughs> video game. So, a little bit of uh, opening thoughts here about Xenoblade Chronicles 3 before we dive in. Um, I think that this game has, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know if it's my favorite like world building and story setup in the series because. Xenoblade Chronicles 1 just like captured my attention, my imagination with like the setting living on, you know, uh, the Bionis and stuff like that. But I really like the story setup for this game. Um, I really don't like this game as a mechanical video game. Uh, I think that I was using the phrase wide as an ocean, deep as a puddle. Uh, this game left me extremely unsatisfied mechanically, and the story went had its ups and downs, and then the ending of this game was, frankly, just incredible. Incredible story. So, I have a lot of conflicting thoughts um, about it. There's going to be a lot of things that I'm going to praise and a lot of things that I don't like about this game uh, as we get into it. So, it's kind of a complicated one. Um, How about you? Just some quick opening thoughts.
1: Right off the top, this is probably one of my favorite games ever. Um, That said, it's absolutely flawed, and I'm absolutely going to hear out any and sort of critiques or i don't like this or that but mm-hmm. for me personally this hits all the beats that i look for in video games which makes it for me uh, as close to a perfect game as i can have i think the buns of this sandwich when we talk about the beginning and the end are as good as it gets mm-hmm. a little bit of a slog in the middle but you know that doesn't really take away from the experience like you said i think the world building right off the from the from the opening credit from the opening credits of Nintendo Presents and Monolith Soft and all that are immediately hooks you on just about everything the game's trying to sell. And from that moment, you, you don't look back. So yeah, mechanically, not super innovative at all. But you know what? As someone who um, looks for story and emotion and characters and world building first in video games, uh, this game hits all those beats and then some. So uh, I, I will look back on this game very fondly. Uh, it's a game that I'll try to revisit every year now. It's that high of level for me. It's it's I think it's a top-tier JRPG for Nintendo Switch.
0: Nice. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. Top-tier JRPG on the Switch, despite the things I don't like, the things that I do like are that good. And I think as time passes and... The times that I was bored or frustrated with the combat, that's going to fade away and I'm going to remember the story moments and it's going to just, I think it's going to get better in my memory as we go. I'm not saying I'm going to go back and replay it, but I think that's how this is going to end up going. So uh, let's take a little music break. When we come back, we'll get into uh, the story setup for Xenoblade Chronicles 3. So, in Xenoblade, Colby, you mentioned that opening cinematic. So, in that opening cutscene, a young guy, ponytailed man named Noah, is chasing his friends as they go and try to see a big fireworks show. And suddenly, a giant something appears in the sky, and time freezes around him. And then you flash to the events of uh, the game itself. That opening cutscene is short but it is very, very uh, interesting. And then they immediately, they cut away from it and they leave that little nugget for you to think about for a long time. So (laughs) um, in the game, uh, the world is split up into these two nations called Agnes and Kevas, which are forever at war with each other. Immediately, this reminded me of Xenogears. Um, I did play about 15 hours of Xenogears. This is what's going on in Xenogears 2, two nations perpetually at war. Uh, so it immediately made me think: Like, is Takahashi revisiting uh, Xenogears, a famously unfinished game that they just didn't have the time and resources to see to the full, you know, vision that they had? The nations, Agnes and Keves, are divided into colonies that are governed by flame clocks, uh, which is it's literally a clock that's full of flames, um, and it's a representation <laughs> of the amount of energy available to the people, like life force basically available to the people and available to the colonies in a more traditional sense of the word energy um the only way to replenish the flame clocks is to kill people and to harvest their life force into the um flame clocks hence the endless war uh so you're locked in this they're locked in this repeating cycle of killing to replenish the flame clocks the flame clocks running low you got to go out and kill some more people in battle and it's just that's that's what this world is all about um, the citizens of these nations are born as teenagers and they have a natural lifespan of 10 years, although because they're always killing each other, most don't make it to 10 years. And if you do, it's, um, it's a momentous occasion and I will stop giving story setup there just to get your thoughts on this kind of world building setup, Colby.
1: Yeah. Looking back on it, I mean, has there in recent memory, has there ever been a more effective use of dramatic irony? I mean, so much good so much good stuff is done in this in these opening scenes just again like right away you're interested like the fact that human life is like a resource and they make Mm -hmm. that evident very quickly with you know when the husks fall and the life source literally gets sucked into the flame clock immediately and I think uh, they're powering these two like giant mechs in the opening scene it's super interesting it immediately grabs your attention and just right away um, you want to know more and that's kind of like the It's crazy how like quick they show you the A plot of the game without telling you it's the A plot, which is Mm -hmm. again, some, which is just, I think, fantastic storytelling and writing.
0: Yeah, it's really good. And this is something that I think this game does really, really well. I'm not a huge fan of the beat by beat plot throughout the entire game and the villains and stuff. They're really hit and miss with me. But what I think this game does really, really well is they thoroughly explore this world setup with the two warring nations, the effects that this have has on people, the different ways the different colonies are dealing with this or not dealing with it, uh, ignoring it, basically, all all range of reactions and kind of um, ways that they're living uh, with these pressures. And you're gonna spend a lot of time uh, in this game, Meeting people from different colonies around this world, and just seeing how this is affecting them, and I think that this is something that they do so so well throughout this game.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of different opinions out there that a lot of different characters give you um, mm-hmm. that I'm sure we'll get into more in the spoiler section. But I mean, the the game does beg a lot of like real life questions in these instances that you know obviously we can't relate to. You know, they're called terms, living only ten terms, and then you know seemingly. Either dying on the battlefield or, you know, just dying once you hit your final day. But yeah, uh, a lot of, a lot of life questions presented and a lot of heavy topics presented. And I think that Takahashi and the entire Xeno era, I guess, does a great job of, you know, pushing that into the limelight and making the player, um, answer some difficult questions at times.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and the, the fact that these characters, the, people that inhabit these colonies are basically purpose made for the, uh, sole purpose of fighting and killing. And it's not like they're emotionless robots about this. They are people that feel certain ways about this. Uh, some of them, you know, they, they, they're like anime characters who live for the thrill of fight, a thrill of battle. Right. And then some of them are like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. Like, this is, this is terrible. Like why, why is, why is thing, why are things like this? And like I said before, you have for both of us, 60 plus hours up to 150 hours for some people, uh, for these characters to really explore and talk to people and get a wide range of, um, yeah, reactions and, uh, lifestyles based on this setup here.
1: Definitely, definitely agree with all of that. Uh,
0: so the story here follows Noah, um, who is arguably the main character, uh, along with his two friends, Lance and Yuni, uh, they're from Kevis, and it also follows Mio, who is arguably the other main character, and her friends, uh, Tion and Senna, they're from Agnes, as the two groups join, uh, despite the natural state of uh, them as enemies. They're forced to join forces, uh, and this is your main six uh, throughout the entire game. You're going to rotate through a seventh character throughout the game, uh, based on what's going on in the plot. There'll be a kind of guest stars in your party and then you can choose who that seventh is for a lot of the game too uh, but you're going to spend a lot of time with these six noah lance uni mio uh, Tyon, and senna and a key thing for me to get through a long jrpg is for me to like the party and like really get into them and their group dynamic and stuff and this is another thing that i think this game crushes i love this cast and i think that them as a group are really really good together
1: yeah I uh, well yeah I have a couple things on this. I'm gonna ask you throughout this episode to kind of push it back a little bit, like some of your like favorite moments from this game. the mm-hmm. scene where they are fighting each other like when they first meet that's yeah one of my favorite scenes in the game when Noah like figures out Mio's pattern and they're dueling, love that then obviously, when they you know get the stone and become friends, and the whole the whole thing's great. I, I love it. Yeah. I've watched it multiple times. Yeah, this cast is fantastic. Uh Noah and Mia are obviously the highlights of it. The game is centered around them, but the, the other four are just as good and all have their own special moments. Uh, I do miss a little bit of the diversity in groups. And I mean that in the sense of everyone here is about the same age. Now that's the natural state of the world. So they mm-hmm. probably couldn't help themselves. And I think that's where the seventh guest party member helps in some cases. But I do miss having the Shulk and, you know, Ryan and, you know, Dumb Band's the older one. And then you have, um, I can't forget the, the girl's name with the kid Juju and one, but you, I I do miss (laughs) a little bit of the, of the age gap and the different, you know, the different kind of upbringings from the games, but that's not the, but regardless, I still love this cast. These characters are great. They, Mm -hmm. they all blend so perfectly together. I think the, you know, the friction between them is done very well in the beginning of the game. And then the, unison they have towards the end is also very well done so it's cool seeing their that relationship build throughout the course of the game and um it's it's very well done
0: yeah yeah couldn't agree more um and and this is that i came through this game like you know starting out and just being like okay i've got noah and mio they're the characters that are on like you know the promo art and stuff like that they're obviously the main characters and we'll see how these other four characters go and Lance is kind of, you know, he's really brash and it comes off as, uh, to me, someone where I'm like, okay, buddy, just tone it down a little bit. Uh, but I ended up loving him. Um, uni is really kind of, uh, forward, um, and, uh, vulgar in a lot of ways. And <laughs> yeah. it's another thing that like, it's really hit and miss when characters like curse in video games, uh, for me, cause it, it doesn't feel natural in a lot of games. I love uni too because she's a fucking weirdo. And I, I, I dig that (laughs) same thing with, um, the other two with Tyon very reserved, uh, very, uh, tactical in the way he approaches situations and, uh, Senna, uh, with her flaming hair and giant hammer. Um, it's it's just, yeah, I, I love, I mean, I love all of them. It's, it's really impressive for me to come out of this, um, out of this like long experience and, try to think in my head, who's my favorite side character? And I'm like, well, I love Senna. Well, I also love Uni too. I mean, Lance is pretty cool too. And like, uh, I like Tyone too. You know, it's it's tough to pick a favorite other than Noah and Mio.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, just It's crazy how this game does such a good job of making you feel the, the triumph, the defeat, the pain, the joy of, of six characters all at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- not only between themselves, but between um, the party and the player as well. I think it is... Again, just exceptional. I I don't really know how else to put it other than it's just it's so well done, especially early in the game. Like This is just more of that hook, line, and sinker that Monolith Soft does, and they do a wonderful job of it.
0: Yeah. So your group here, the group of six, um, is given the power of Ouroboros, which is a word you're going to hear a million times throughout the game. And in making my notes and writing this word down a hundred times, I finally learned how to spell it. So good job, Dave. You crushed Uh, it. Yeah. Trust me. Uh, I went back and fixed all the times I misspelled it. So um, your group is given the power of Ouroboros, which um, is explained in the game. I'm not going to get too deep into it right now, but it's it's a, a power of sorts. And they set off to do what they can to see if they can change the way that this world works uh, because they're tired of the constant fighting, killing. And the other part is that Noah and Mio, uh, their roles, they're obviously they're fighters, they're killers, but they're also uh, called offseers, and their role is to go to the battlefield when people have died or if you find a dead body around the world, and kind of, they call it sending them off, uh, which is to send their soul out to be at peace, basically. Um, if you played Final Fantasy X, think Yuna doing the same thing. It's very, very similar. Um, I think they have a unique perspective on this uh life of endless killing because they're the ones who have to go out and see the carnage after the battles are over and deal with it.
1: Yeah, Noah primarily, I think, is the one they highlight uh between the two of them. Um he really has a lot of strong opinions on like at least in the beginning, he's the one that's kind of pushing forward the agenda of, okay, we need to go change things and you know, see what we can do. Cause like you said, he's seen the immediate aftermaths of all these battles. And even in the first mission, like they make the point of oh, they missed the transport to the colony because Noah was too busy sending off the voices of the departed is what they call it, I believe, in the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they kind of they kind of crack a joke at it, but it's just one of many times early on in the game that Noah highlights that, you know, this world's really kind of, this world really kind of sucks and the way things are <laughs> is just awful. And the fact that we just get transported from battlefield to battlefield to kill each other is like, it feels like there's more to life than this. And... He pushes that forward, I think, in Mio's head as well, because I don't think Mio has a lot of strong opinions on the matter, at least when you first meet her. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the, the off-seeing role, like T- Tyler's been texting me, he's like, there's got to be something more to this. Like he's just been playing through the game like there's got to be something more to this. And I'm like, I eh, can't tell you, but I, I I I do like it. I do like the, um, the perspective that that role gives and that there's two of them. It, it again, just further hardens home that this world sucks and we need to go change it. And now that we have this power to change it, it would be a waste not to use it.
0: Yeah, 100%. So as you're going through the story, this is a, a classic Xenoblade thing. If you played the other Xenoblade games, you know what I'm about to say. But this starts out really strong. And then about 30 hours of me being like, okay, uh, let's get to the good stuff. And then it gets to the good stuff. This is unlike Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which I think is like definitely a, it gets good after 25 hours game. Uh, this game starts out really strong. Like if you're not, if you're not interested in the story setup that we gave you, I'm not sure that the story is going to work for you. Um, but I thought it was really interesting and maybe the game does a better job of setting it up than me, but, um, it, it really does take like a dip in the middle, I think, um, And there are inherent pacing issues with games where you're allowed to approach the main quest whenever you want to, uh, which this game is. You'll have lots of side content that you can do at any time. So I thought the middle kind of dragged and then the end was, well, let's just say I can't wait to talk about it in the spoiler (laughs) section because I got thoughts on the end. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like I said, in my, um, in my earlier introduction, the, the buns of this game are very good. But, you know, now that we're, we've gotten past the the sesame seed bun and now we're kind of on to the, you know, condiments and vegetables, it gets a little, you know, watered down. There's a couple cute, like, you know, heartwarming, like, oh, the, the six are starting to bond more together scenes. Yeah. The Oasis is the one that immediately comes to mind for me when they all hang out in the Oasis. And that's when you first learn how to do the gemstones. But yeah, just... I feel like all desert levels in all games have a tendency of just dragging <laughs> down the plot yeah. immensely. Like I, I don't know what it is, but yeah. Uh, unless you sped run it like me, because I played on easy. This was only like fifteen hours for me. Like I couldn't mm-hmm. twenty five might have been the nail in the coffin. Only but,
0: only fifteen hours. Yeah. Only only, <laughs>
1: only 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 forty percent of my playthrough. But yeah, yeah. The middle part. I mean, couple couple fun highlight moments. Some a little bit of world building. A little bit of you know, they introduce a lot of gameplay stuff here too, which is great because Xenoblades have a tendency of introducing like, oh, here's a new mechanic uh, with 30 minutes left to play in the game. So yeah. yeah, again, nothing really super special in the middle, but it does a good job of getting you to that. Oh, this is the good stuff. And then it's just all incredible from there.
2: Yeah. Yep. Totally
0: agree. And there were times... Like, you know, in our mutual discord servers and DMS and stuff, there were times when I was like, man, I don't like this game that much. And then when I hit, you know, that, that spot that you mentioned with Tyler getting to earlier, I was like, motherfucker, I am back in hundred percent back in, uh, so Buying I'm just glad I got back. to that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, a couple of thoughts here, and these are mostly for people who played the other Xenoblade games. Um, I appreciate how not horny this game is. Uh, Xenoblade Chronicles two is way too horny for me.
1: Very excited to go play that game. <laughs> uh,
0: there are, um, yeah, just, just not a lot of like sex happening in this game. People don't, <laughs> people don't need to have children in this game. They're all born when they're teenagers. So like, it's a very early cutscene. like makes it very clear. They're not even thinking about that. So, um, I appreciate that as a, uh, a prude in video. Is games.
1: that pretty up? Is that pretty upfront in Xenoblade two?
0: Uh yeah, character designs and uh, there is a nopon that has a a made a French made robot. So yeah. Um, however, oh that being said, I guess they couldn't help themselves because there is a waifu robot <laughs> DLC coming and a swimsuit uh, cosmetic DLC coming. So I
1: think it's already in the game.
0: <laughs> they kept it out of the main game, um, but they couldn't help themselves. Apparently,
1: Takahashi, um, please. <laughs>
0: The other thing, um, and you played Xenoblade Chronicles 1, so you know what I'm talking about. The other thing I think is really great is uh, the Nopon in this game, shut the fuck up for most of the game. <laughs> I find them super annoying. And in this game, they barely talk. Uh, there's, there are a couple that travel with you and they talk every five hours or so. Uh, Tora really, really annoys me in Xenoblade 2 as much as I love that game. And in this game, the Nopon are quiet and it's, it's very nice.
1: Yeah, it's it scares you in the beginning though, doesn't it? With the nopon, they're like, oh boy, yeah. here they come. They're they're <laughs> going to be the one. They're going to be the one to kill a God at it's, the end of this game. But
0: it's the uh, it's the the San Andreas uh, shit. Here we go again. Ex- exactly. But no, they they do a great job of actually
1: like, especially um the especially Riku. Like, what he has to say is usually important. So yeah, it's I I love how much of a backseat they took because at the end of the day, that's what they are. They're they're second rate characters. They're kind of there for the comedic portion of it. But in this case, mm-hmm. one of them actually is knows a lot more than he's leading on. Maybe it yeah. could be a spoiler thing, but <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate the, the no pun not, not driving the bus here.
0: Yes. hundred percent. Um, so a couple other thoughts about the story. Um, I mentioned this before. I think the beat by beat plot has really good moments and some really, really poor ones that I'm going to talk about later. Um, the villains in this game are in my opinion caricatures and i don't like them um i don't i don't appreciate them as characters they are as mustache twirly as you get for the most part they explain their motivations later i still don't think it makes them good but that being said there are a couple villains in this game that are as good as any villain in a jrpg that i've played recently so you just gonna have to deal with the bad ones they'll be gone soon and then you'll get the good ones i promise they're there
1: Yeah, you're not going to hear me push back on the villain argument. I think that is pretty, pretty commonly known as the weakest portion of the game is the villains, which is a shame because of how good the game is, even with that. But yeah, like you said, there's a couple like, especially in the beginning, like a couple like you just don't even remember like what they were trying to accomplish or what they were trying to do. And then once you get into the major side quests and the main story, then you get some of the really good ones. But Uh, Yeah, the villains suffer from a lot of reasons. I won't get into all of them now, but you only really care about what's happening with them in brief spurts like throughout the entire course of the game because like they're hardly there and the ones that and they're constantly rotating out because they're all different and you're fighting the alphabet and it's just all it's all messed up. Like there's no like the the primary antagonist you don't meet till like the last 30 minutes of the game, which is.
0: Which is a JRPG-ass JRPG trope.
1: Yeah, game. like how are you supposed to care at that point about like what he's trying to accomplish?
2: Yeah.
0: Yep, totally agree. The last thing I have about the story um, is that for people who are coming to this with knowledge of Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and 2, there are a lot of references and world building that's built on those two games, but it's pretty indirect. Like um, there are some mechanical things, which I'll talk about. In the combat, um, and then there are names—I guess proper nouns. I'll say there are proper nouns that are brought back. And if it's been multiple years since you played one of those games, unless you're like a fanatic, uh, a lot of those things are going to go over your head. If you're like me, um, I didn't notice most of them until I—I I was actually complaining. I was like, you know, I don't—I don't see where this fits in the series. And people are like, oh, here's all these things that are actually references to one and two. And I was like, oh, I. Just didn't notice at all. Uh, So if you are like a lore hound, a Xenoblade fanatic, that stuff is there for you, Um, but very surface level uh, for the most part.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'll bring up the other side of that argument just to be devil's advocate. I think Nintendo primarily does a really good job of this. and I suspect they'll do this with Tears of the Kingdom as well. When they release games that are a part of a bigger whole, they do a good job of making it that you can enjoy that specific game without having any knowledge of the prior ones.
0: That is true, I think,
1: yeah. I think Xenoblade Chronicles 3 by itself, and I think Tyler is an embodiment of this, it's one of his favorite games he's ever played, and he has no experience with the series. Saga, Gears, or Blade, he's just he's the only game he's played is 3, and he just loves it. He's not confused. He gets what's happening. I think, if anything until the very end of the game, the connections to one and two are more like rewards for playing those games, I guess, to make the, maybe make the audience feel smart. Like, Oh, Hey, I know what he's talking about. Yep. But yeah, I think this game is on its own is very good. Like I think it does a very good job of distinguishing itself as something different as most Nintendo sequels tend to do.
0: That's true. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, this is an inevitable question when we get kind of deep into series here. Uh, do I need to play Xenoblade Chronicles one and two to understand Xenoblade Chronicles three? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, This game stands on its own. Um, Having knowledge of the first two games will enhance it. uh, But you definitely don't need to play the first two games to get this and understand it. And um, not to go too deep into it, but you can play this game first and then go play the other two. And that context will still make sense as you're playing the other two games, I think, in a in a pretty cool way. And that is all I'm going to say about that, lest I spoil something. I'm acting like I can't edit out something if I say a spoiler. I, I have the power here. But um, yeah, it, it's it's good stuff. You got any other thoughts about the, uh, the story before we move on here?
1: Uh, not really. I think we hit a lot of the major beats without getting too deep into it. Like yeah. you said, if you're not asking like what's coming next after three or four hours, this probably isn't going to click for you because the next fifteen hours, sure as hell, will not click for you. But <laughs> yeah, I think um, chapter one's as good as it gets. I think honestly, yeah. when it comes to this game, like and there's a there's only seven chapters, majority of them are good. Chapter one is absolutely at the top of that list.
0: Yeah, it, it really starts out strong, grabs your attention. And then hopefully it can hold you for like that middle (laughs) section until you get to water for a while. Yeah. Until you get back to the, um, you know, the roller coaster on its way down again. Yeah. So, this is a Xenoblade game, so if you've played that, you know what this um, kind of entails. You are going to be traversing giant levels, giant open levels. It is not quite open world because you're following a linear path, but these levels are, you know, they're huge. Uh, they take multiple minutes to run from one end to the other, to the point where, like, you just don't run, just use fast travel. There's, you, you're not going to, like, miss anything by doing that. Um, but... If you like to explore, if you like to poke around, if you like to pick up the millions of items that are strewn around, uh, you're going to have a good time because there is room for you to roam uh, in these levels. Uh, They're also full of monsters to fight out on the field. And when you get into combat, uh, you fight them right where you were. This is not a game where you transition to a separate combat screen or something like that. So... You played Xenoblade 1. You know what this is about. Are you still into this, like these giant levels with all these items and monsters roaming around?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that... I think this is where this series suffers from being on the Switch because if this was on like the PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series X, I can't imagine what it would just look like visually. But yeah, th- even that said, like the the sword piercing the great monster looks incredible still. Like it, it looks amazing. Yeah. I love the visual aesthetic of these games. I think it's, it's just so different from anything I've ever really played. Monster design's different. Like, it's all, I, I don't know why there are a million items per square foot. I, I really don't. like, I, And most of them aren't really helpful items. Like, I hardly ever went out of my way to get containers in this game because I think quests just do a so much better job of giving you the materials you need. And that gives you the extra world building too. So I was always like, eh, I, it's a cool container I got, but I'm good. I'd rather send off this soldier or just go do the quest instead. But I, I love the look of the... I think the Faronises look really good in this game too. Like the mm-hmm. on, at the colonies, I love those too. But yeah, the world looks great. I, I love the levels. Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of the desert levels. That's just in any video game. It's not my <laughs> favorite. It has the classic Xenoblade desert level and the classic Xenoblade like like ruined factory portion level. Uh, I'm thinking early in the game too. So I like the way it looks. I think as far as exploring goes, um, the Cadencia region is by far the most rewarding for exploring because of all different aisles and islands that you can find there. Lots of different, lots of good stuff there that flushes out that area of the world. But yeah, I, I, I like the world. I like the exploration portion of it. Um, I do like this in, in most cases. If you want to, you can literally just follow a red line to the next point. Objective it is the fastest way to get there. I like yeah. that addition personally because I'm playing God of War right now and that's not there. And I'm really playing with with <laughs> a guide sitting two feet away from me, like telling me where to go. So mm. I, as a as a non-gamer, uh, I <laughs> as a non-gamer-esque, I, I just like the red line option. It's nice. It's a nice little touch. I've never seen that before in a game.
0: It It is nice. And um, if I remember correctly... It doesn't just like draw a line that connects the two points on the map. It actually gives you a line to follow that will actually get you to the place where you're trying to go.
1: The fastest possible route is what it does, which is very because yeah. sometimes it's taking a direction you're like that can't be right, and you're just like, oh well, there it was.
0: Yeah, um, I think this is a direct response to Xenoblade Two, which had a map that showed you where you're supposed to go, but did not really help you with what level it was on. There's a lot of verticality in that game. Mm. There's a lot of times where I'd like go to the map marker, but it turns out it was above me or below me. And I'm like, fuck now I have to find a way up there (laughs) in this game. I think this is a direct response to that. Uh, So they fixed that. Yeah. Regarding the exploration. um, I think they want you to explore in this game with these giant levels. And I think the exploration is unrewarding for the most part. Like you said, the items in this game are, it it is bizarre how many items there are. And it is bizarre how few uses you have for items in i i ended this game with probably like thousands of items i never bought shit from merchants not necessary at all very weird uh item economy in this game nothing makes sense Uh, the only thing you use items for are quests that are like um here's a list of 10 items we need 15 things from this list uh come back when you're ready and yeah and if you so,
1: d- and if you don't have it you have to go find this tiny blue triangle that doesn't show up on the map you have to go find the physical item like yeah, in the region
0: it's kind of ridiculous yeah
1: yeah for sure <laughs> uh, and um, the i mean there is use for items i don't know if you know this but the collectopedia that's where you mainly transfer the items to certain colonies and that's how you like get affinity for certain like areas but it's hidden it's it's hidden so far in the depths of the UI that most people don't know that so yep. yeah items really weird, really weird how useless kind of items are in this game.
0: This is a Xenoblade thing. Every Xenoblade game is like this. They have not changed it one bit. Every game, I think the same thing. Uh and I'm running as I'm running through the levels, I'm picking up all the items knowing full well I'm never going to use them. <laughs> it is it's a it's a complete lizard brain thing. Uh, You mentioned the containers. I open all the containers. Never use the items inside. Total just lizard brain reaction. I want shiny stuff to come out of a container. And you mentioned the downed, uh, the Faranis uh, things. These are giant mechs, basically, that a colony will be built around. And when I say giant, I mean giant. They're huge. Um, Sometimes you'll find downed ones out in the field. It's cool to find one, but I think I only found three my entire game. So they're pretty rare and you get more items for finding them. <laughs> yeah, it's a place do. for you to spend your ether. I ended the game with 99 ether, never found a good way to spend it. Just a bizarre bizarre game in this fashion.
1: Yeah, I, I d- definitely agree. I wish there was more um I think they call them Ferranus Husker Hulks, one of the two. Yeah. I wish there were more of them because they introduce them pretty early and it's like, "Oh, this is a pretty cool concept it's where you spend your ether, you can get some extra" Um, you some extra resources here. This is a place where you can set up camp and train and level up. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's nice to have, it's always nice to have those areas to fast travel to when you need to do something. But I think I only found like four of them and I'm kind of like, oh, this is, you know, I still have so much ether in this cylinder that I don't know what to do with. So Yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like another missed opportunity, but you know, I feel like we're just, we were praising the Xenoblade name here when it comes to these types of problems.
0: Oh yeah. It's a, it's a series wide thing. Doesn't change the whole time. Um, and I appreciate it's, the, it's the consistency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are nothing if not consistent, uh, for sure. Regarding the exploration are like the levels, I guess a couple more things. You made a good point that I like the way the levels look like if you just stop and look out at the landscape, it's really interesting most of the time. Um, and this is a Xenoblade thing throughout all the games too, Lots of crazy, you know, natural formations, rock formations, um, colorful forests, wherever you are, they all have unique features. Uh, this is a game where again, if it wasn't on the switch, I might've taken a ton of screenshots of the landscape. Um, it's on the switch though, so it doesn't look great. I mean, it looks cool, but like the resolution and stuff is, is pretty rough. Like this game kind of suffers for being on the switch, um, Things get real pixelated from time to time even in like cutscenes and stuff it's there's not a whole lot of games I've played where I'm like who the switch who it's uh giving its dying breath right now <laughs> uh, this was one of those games though where I was like oh, we got to get something new going on nintendo like come on it's it's time
1: we got to power up the hardware baby like we we yeah. can't be letting games like this look like this because this is this is what the this is what the normie Twitter people use to drag this game through the mud. There's like, oh look at this screenshot and you're just like no, yeah.
0: no, please. <laughs> please don't look at that screenshot. Please yeah. <laughs> play the game and talk about yeah. the story.
1: <laughs> please watch the 13 and a half hour movie. I promise you'll get something out of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing um that I didn't mention about the story. There are, like you said, over 13 hours of cutscenes in this game. Um I went on YouTube and found that cutscene compilation movie too. So watching a lot of cutscenes um the cutscenes are generally entertaining, especially the action cutscenes. That's a Xenoblade staple. Um, but yeah, a lot of cutscenes in the game. The other thing about the world, last thing, is that this game introduces some light Metroidvania, saying this with like air quotes style upgrades to unlock new places to go. Like uh you'll get the ability to climb up special vines or walk up a slope that it's made of sand. Um these allow you to access new parts of levels and uh, whatever you might find there. You might find some more bullshit items. You might find a new colony, though, which is a really cool discovery because that means more side quests and more people to talk to, like we said before, about like the pressures of this world and stuff like that. I enjoy those, but every time I'm like, I didn't get that Metroidvania thing where it's like, I got a new item i'm gonna go back to those old levels and climb up all those slopes i couldn't climb before because i did it a couple times and it was like you found a container and i was like all right okay you burn me you know burn me three or four times i'm gonna stop doing it
1: it's a very mixed it's a very mixed bag Uh, i think the (laughs) one that's most rewarding is one where you can um slide on the slopes like the wire slopes that that for me was the one that like gave away some serious like story beats and you know places to go I'm thinking in ch- late chapter 3 chapter 4 that's kind of where that's the, that's the most rewarding so I mean yeah but I mean I only went I've only I, I could probably count on one hand how many times I went up a sandy slope like honestly yeah. like it just didn't come in handy for me that much the ladders is the most useful when you can actually get down them because getting down them is a pain if you're if you're not sensitive with the joystick you'll just fall and shatter your legs but
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah world traversal it, like it's fine like it's, it's nothing super special
0: Speaking of things that are not super special, it is time to talk about the combat. Uh, So, right off the bat, if you played a Xenoblade Chronicles game, you've already played Xenoblade Chronicles 3. You know exactly what this combat is. There are some things that, because Xenoblade combat is this MMO-style combat based on skills and cooldowns. And you auto-attack. So, a lot of the time you're just sitting there auto-attacking, waiting for a cooldown to run out so you can use one of your skills again. And this is, this is Xenoblade. I thought Xenoblade Chronicles 2 had a really engaging combat system. They introduced a lot of mechanics that kept me at least pushing buttons the entire time. And that is not what happens in Xenoblade 3. So each character is assigned a class, um, a DPS tank or healer type of role. And there are variations in there. There are lots of different DPS classes. There are lots of different tank classes um, that get different skills and stuff like that. I'm just going to say this straight out. This job system is mechanically broke. I don't understand why this is in the game. None of the classes made an appreciable difference to me, except for some of them had skills that let you do the break topple days combo, and some of them didn't. Other than that, I feel like you can just ignore this and get through the game just fine
1: i am someone who likes to play as close to the canonic lore as possible so that means keeping the party members as their primary classes so noah sword fighter mifa or Mia, cipher etc um y- yeah i agree like some skills are better than others like i always love um the one that, that i always like um for example ref time ahead uh the double power up with aggro down maximum voltage shadow eye that I love that little there because it takes the pressure off of you and you do some serious damage with auto attacks. But I don't know who thought it was a good idea to not press a button and still be able to attack. Like, cause I find myself like scrolling Twitter while I'm battling at this point cause I'm just so yeah. over leveled. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, let's, let's see what um Dave's tweeting about while I'm like murdering this giant, like super boss. But yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like we're, if, if Xenoblade is to continue, I feel like we need to shake this up. Like, I
0: feel like we have Gotta hit do something, pe- man. It's, I can't do another 75 hours of this combat. We've
1: hit, we have, we have hit the peak. If this even is the peak, I feel like now we're coming down the mountain in Xenoblade Chronicles 3. If 2 yeah. is the peak, as you say, and I, I'll take your word for it, then we are coming off a steep ass slope in 3 because I'm kind of just done with this. It's not engaging at all in this game. I appreciate the class system. It gives you incentive to go find the additional seventh characters as you put them but yeah I, I'm kind of done with this combat style it's just not engaging and you know it's it's cool it's nice to try something different but especially in 2022 like it's just not just not keeping up with the times
0: yeah and you know what this reminds me of we talked about final fantasy 7 remake earlier this is this reminds me of Final Fantasy VII remake except you're pressing the buttons in 7 remake. You're actually pressing square to attack and you're dodging and stuff like that. You can dodge in Xenoblade 3 but it you don't like attacks don't have hitboxes. You're going to get hit anyway. Yeah. So like it, it's just it it is it is tired. This is a tired combat system.
1: I I agree. I think it's outkicked its coverage. I think it's time for something new (laughs) as far as the Xenoblade Chronicles, Xeno whatever series goes, which I I think they will try something different. Like, I think they realize that, you know, because this has been hailed as the end of this storyline. So maybe they'll take it in a different direction in future installments if they decide to do so, which I I sincerely hope so. Because, I mean, games like you would think this game is super old compared to games like 7 Remake. That combat system is so, like, you need to be on your game to... yeah you know, play to beat some really high bosses where if you've the right skills and once the once you and once you're able to hit plus, I mean it most fo- bosses must most fights are over in this game.
0: Yep. So what Colby's referring to there is Xenoblade combat systems are all about doing your basic attacks and skills to build up a meter so that you can do stronger skills. And then doing those, uh at least in Xenoblade 2 if I remember right, um doing those builds up stronger skills and stuff like that. In this game, you're building up a gauge called the chain attack gauge, which is something from the Xenoblade series chain attacks. But what Colby is referring to there by just waiting until you hit plus and then the battle's over totally correct because that is what the strategy in this game is. Every single fight in this, I am and this is not hyperbole. Every fight in this game, except for one made was the exact same strategy. Fight the boss, Maybe I'll switch to the healer if, like, people are dying too much. I'll control the healer and, like, take care of that. Other than that, it is use your skills, uh, wait for that bar to fill up, use the chain attack. The chain attack is probably enough to kill whatever you're fighting. If it's not, start that process over again. Get a second chain attack. And, like... That it might sound like hyperbole, and I I exaggerate from time to time. I promise you, I am not exaggerating here. It's exactly what this combat system is. And for 65 hours, for every fight to be exactly the same, except for one, one,
1: it's ridiculous. And and even in that, (laughs) even in that one, you're so overleveled, it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. And that's the other thing you are most likely going to be overleveled if you do side quests. And the kind of a rebuttal that I've heard to this is don't get the bonus levels when you camp. And to me, that is not my responsibility to make sure that the game is balanced. If you're going to let me level up at a campfire, I'm going to do it. Like, this is a video game. Come on. <laughs> okay. uh, if, you, if you want it to be better balanced, then balance the fucking game. Don't put that responsibility on me.
1: Yeah, like just level scale. Level scale is in the post game. Why can't they have it in the main game? Like, if you're... 10 levels above a boss like be able, you should be you should be able to hit a button that lets you scale that scales them up or scales you back down and you just get to bank the bonus xp so you can just yeah. power right back up again so there's solutions to this problem that th- this you know over leveled problem they just didn't do them until it, it until it didn't matter in the post game but th- we are clowning on the chantak attack. chantaks are pretty cool i do like that you can um there's some, there's some cool strategies you can do with the chain attacks. I've seen people get like 40 million damage on chain attacks. It's absolutely insane. But this is where, I think this is where the class system is utilized best because you, you have different characters do different things. Whereas Noah's primarily an attacker. He's always going to get that um one twenty five boost. If he attacks first, now that can be tie on and Noah can be your healer to build up your point limit and all that good stuff. So I think there, that's where the class system probably excels the best is in the chain attacks, but even then, like, it's just, it's, not, it's just not super engaging because the chain attacks are just, they're so broken. It's insane. They're so
2: good, yeah.
1: The Ouroboros ones are just nuts.
2: Yeah,
0: I agree with you, though. The, the chain attack and trying to puzzle out how do I get the maximum amount of, like, um, commands, I think they're called, yep. in the uh, the chain attack. How do I get three or four of those uh, before running out of chain attack meter I guess um, that was the uh, the most engaging part of the combat by far and I still had fun with that because as you go later there are extra things you can do in the chain attack and so you need to kind of try to build up to that and it is kind of fun it's not super fun but compared to the regular combat where you're just kind of like you have so you have three skills you auto attack and the cooldowns, um, on your skills kind of build up and then you can use the skills. There are supposed to be like, I think that the intent is that there's strategy to when you use these skills, what situation you're in. There's not, you just use them when it's available. Uh, there are some where it's like attack from behind for a bonus. And I'm like, okay, I need to be engaged by something. So I'm at least going to do that. But the difference is not that noticeable. You're, you're going to add 15 seconds onto your fight if you don't attack from behind. So it's it's really just so disappointing that they went from Xenoblade 2, which got complicated at the end, but you had 80 hours to build up to that level of complication. And then they just went right back. This is, this is Xenoblade Chronicles 1 combat in this game. And it's really, really disappointing to me that they took this big step back.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you there i haven't played too but hearing you talk about that has me excited to at least try it out because for, i think your words exactly were they don't explain it very well but once you get the hang of it it's pretty good so i yeah. would have much rather had that in this game because like you said it's just i i'm, I'm not one for auto battling but goddamn like it felt like i was just auto battling 90 percent of this game and like even the boss fights like they just got it if it yeah, there's just not, there's not entertaining. Like they don't make the, that's honestly like if, if villains were enhanced through the combat, they, the villains probably wouldn't be a problem, but they're not, if anything, they're worse through the <laughs> combat. Cause you just whop the shit out of all of them.
0: It, either that, or let's say, um, because this game, um, it, the difficulty in combat is really dependent on what level you are. Uh, this is not a game where you're going to skill your way through combat. I think if you're like no. five levels lower than something, you're going to get destroyed and if you're one level above something, you're fine. You're going to beat it. Uh, so the thing about the boss fights is, other than that one, they were just regular enemy fights that were three times as long. And that, have other than that music. And yeah, music too, uh, which we're going to talk about soon because I can't end the non-spoiler part on just a total shit fest like the combat is. But.
1: I, do, I do have a question. What was more annoying about the chain attacks? How overpowered they were that they cut off every single piece of music during the game
0: i like the chain attack music so i didn't mind that like no, i really I, liked
1: it that that really annoyed me in certain fights I'm
0: Like, oh, come on <laughs> true i mean there are some fights that are taking place in very climactic moments with very climactic music and Danny, to cut Danny, that out Danny, Danny, Danny for something. the chain attack music <laughs> that you've heard 60 times <laughs> like in the last like two hours i get it yeah
1: it, it, it emotionally lets you off the hook in some cases but yeah it is what it is
0: Yeah, I don't feel like we need to keep beating this dead horse. I have other notes about why the combat sucks, but I don't feel (laughs) like I need to get into them. Um, The other I guess the last thing I'll say is that in Xenoblade fashion, they are introducing new combat mechanics every 10 hours for the entire game. Literally five hours before I beat the game, they introduced a new mechanic. And I was like, I don't need this. This is not necessary whatsoever. Uh, In Xenoblade 2, you do need those things and they're cool they add another layer of depth to the combat yeah just i'm gonna go back down this path of talking about how disappointed i am i think it's time to cut it right now yeah
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i we can talk about this all day i feel like but you know this this game's good so let's talk about the good things
0: let's talk about the good things so uh we're gonna talk about music we'll get a break and let you listen to some of it we'll get back to it Xenoblade Chronicles, if the series is known for anything, it's known for giant environments, interesting stories, and kick-ass music. And the music in this game really follows the like the traditional Xenoblade Chronicles stuff, uh, with kind of orchestral arrangements but dominated by electric guitar, which is what drew me into the first game's soundtrack. Because uh, I'd never heard a JRPG. I play I my experience was mostly Final Fantasy those don't use you know electric like metal speed metal guitar solos and stuff like Xenoblade songs do Um, difference in this game though because Noah and Mio are offseers and they play a flute to send off uh, the souls of the departed uh, flutes dominate this soundtrack too as well as those other uh, instruments that are traditional for the series and I thought this was really interesting just taking uh, like a nice little choice in the music direction uh, to tie into the story here.
1: Yeah. I think the, f- I, I love the flute personally. I love that uh, game award nominations yesterday. I cannot wait until they play the flute when they introduce it for the game of the year um, nomination. When, when they mm-hmm. introduce all the games and stuff, the off steer tune flute, is going to be, oh my God, I'm going to be crying in my room at 1030. It's going to be great. But <laughs> yeah, I, I love the flute. I, I love, I love this soundtrack. Like I was telling Tyler the other day, like, you know, it's like compared to other games in the series, like it's not like it might not even be the best in its own series, but they're just so good and there's so many different tracks and uh, it's just hard not to be like, yeah, this is incredible. Like, it really, I, I do appreciate the difference I think, with the flute. Like it's just so, it's so different. Like it's something you don't expect.
2: Yeah.
0: It, it fits in with the story. The flute like takes a like a main player seat in like the battle theme in the first area that you're in. So if you like flute, this game is for you. Shout out to Katie Shesko, former guest on the show. Katie has a bunch of Xenoblade flute covers um, going on. So she was on the Near Automata episode. Um, so if you remember her, shout out to Katie. Uh, this game this game was made for Katie. So um, <laughs> Just her. Yeah, just her. But if you like flutes, you're going to be very happy with this. It's an interesting direction that the story or that the uh, music has taken here though, uh, because there is a, like a grand setting out in, on an adventure feel to Xenoblade one and two. And I think the music really reflects that in the levels, like the, the famous, the Gar plane, if I'm pronouncing that correctly from Xenoblade one, the, a lot of the levels from Xenoblade two have really like motivational, like driving um, fun soundtracks and in Xenoblade Three, those level tracks are a lot more reserved. Uh, they really they're a lot more somber in a lot of ways, and atmospheric really fits in with the story, but it also leaves me with not as many super memorable songs uh, from that aspect at least.
1: Yeah, you make a great point. I think the music does the music does a great job of environmental storytelling, I think, just because of how like somber the world is and how terrible things are. I think the slower tracks and the colonies and the overworld and, you know, sometimes in battle, like I think it does a great job of getting the point across like, yeah, like this world sucks and everything's not usually going well and our heroes are usually on the short end of the stick. That's why I'm so annoyed when the chantac music cuts off some of those really good tracks. But <laughs> yeah, I think it does a great job of environmental storytelling. And I also agree with your point that there wasn't a ton of songs I listened to and I'm like, okay, I have to know what that is. There's like five or six and I wrote them down in my notes. But They're usually like either late game or big story moments or, you know, not... It wasn't really any songs that... You know, Boss Fight was... It was cool, but, you know, like compared to other than the series, like kind of forgettable. Like, I don't even think the the best boss fights are when you fought the... Like the trash mobs who were elites. Like that track was better, I think, than the... Than the bass, like, you know, boss songs. But... Yeah. That said, I think the floor is very high with the soundtrack, so even if the ceiling isn't higher than maybe 1 and 2 i think the floor is as high as, as it gets there's no bad tracks in xenoblade games
0: yeah this uh soundtrack as tradition in the xenoblade series this is yatsunori uh mitsuda who is just a an icon in video game soundtrack land uh so even if i'm saying that like you know the music kind of takes a backseat to uh in the name of world building or atmosphere these are still quality songs uh, for sure. And I did go through this game, kind of like you said, without latching on to a song. Xenoblade Chronicles 1 had They Will Know Our Names um, as like a, a, a pivotal like story moment song. Xenoblade Chronicles 2 had Counterattack, which makes me cry if I listen to that song because uh, of the emotions that I associate. I just got shivers thinking about it associate it with the emotions of like story moments because that song is always in the key story moments. And I didn't latch onto a song from Xenoblade 3 uh, like that. There are very good songs and there are very emotional songs, but there's not one that in six months, if you ask me like, what's the definitive song from Xenoblade Chronicles 3? I don't have one for this game, like I do for the first two. And I'm not... Saying that as, like, a criticism of the game, this is purely an experiential, like, observation that I've made, because I did latch onto the music from the first two games so much.
1: Yeah, I, if someone asked me in, like, six months, what was your definitive song, I probably would have an answer for him. but... It's not like you said, like, they will know our names in Counter-Attack. You you can tell the story of Xenoblade Chronicles 3 without mentioning those songs. You can't tell the stories of 1 and 2 without having those songs in them, so... Yeah,
0: they're, they're pivotal, yeah.
1: Yeah, like, there's no pivotal track in this game. Maybe one I can make an argument for, but other than that, like, as far as... I think the music is better off as, like, a background, setting up the world, building around you, setting up what's going on, versus, like, in your face, like... I am telling, like driving the story bus, like that never really happens in this game.
0: Yeah. There's a song on this soundtrack that's also called They Will Know Our Names, and that song is really good. I love that song. Um, but like I said, counterattack and the way that I felt when that song was playing, that's going to stick with me forever. I, I don't think I have one from this game. The music during battles is really good. Uh, I mentioned like the flute, the flute music in the uh, the battles in the first area that you're in. I really like that. You mentioned um, when you're fighting the kind of elite enemies, the one that plays when you fight the blue elites that starts out with that sweeping guitar. I really like that song. Kind of disappointed by the Mobius song, which plays Mobius or the, if you're listening, that word doesn't mean anything to you yet, uh, but plays when you're fighting boss fights against Mobius. I I
1: like the, I'm a sucker for like choir and orchestra. So when that kicks in, I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. But there's a, there's a, there's a version of that song 10 times better in this game.
2: Yeah.
0: The kind of standard version of it is very dissonant and it hurts my ears and I don't enjoy listening to it. It's a song that gets you going. Like I enjoy the melody of it, but there's like really dissonant choir vocals that I just, I don't like it. And you hear that song a lot because it's against the main bosses of the game. And it's just unusual for me to go through a Xenoblade game and be like, I don't like this song you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. But uh, overall, the soundtrack is good. Um, I I was throwing out some hot takes when I was about halfway through the game about how I don't like the soundtrack. Um, the last half of the game and like the emotional moments toward the end and the music that's playing through those are as good as anything that Xenoblade has done before. Um, I just don't think I'm going to come out with a song that means a lot to me uh, like I did for the first two games
1: when I saw that take, I had to check you on it. I'm like, I'll uh, get back to me get, get back to me and get back to me in 20 hours and see if you yeah. still believe that. So I'm glad to see that you, you, you came to the right side of things. Yeah.
0: I can I came to my senses. Uh, and you know, I throw out hot takes from time to time. People can check me on it. That's hey, fine. I, I'm going to, that's good. It's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Time to get into some final thoughts about Xenoblade Chronicles three, before we get into the spoiler section, uh, where we are going to go through the story and stuff. So, um, the question in the final thoughts part, Colby, is who would you recommend Xenoblade Chronicles 3 to?
1: Well, Dave, anybody who craves storytelling, uh, it's pretty simple, plain answer there. We've already been over it. Combat's not going to grab you. You know, maybe some of the environmental stuff won't grab you. This story will. And you know, Takahashi, we've talked about him a lot already, but he's been trying to tell this story since 1998. And finally, in 2022, it's done. The arc is over. And I think it's a great send off for this story specifically. Uh it, it just again invokes emotion out of all players, even on its own, like like I said earlier, even separate from one and two. It is an amazing game by itself. And if what you crave is a good story, I cannot recommend this game enough. And truthfully this series enough. All three of these games are on the Switch, so you have no reason not to play them if you have a Nintendo Switch.
2: Yeah, I'm
0: gonna recommend this first and foremost to Xenoblade Chronicles fans. Um, if you like the first two games play this. It's, it's, it's got something for you. The story is really, really good. Uh, I really enjoyed, um, the story as a whole, I'm thinking of it holistically right now is excellent. I love it. Uh, the story beat by beat, very hit and miss, uh, in my opinion, but it's got the, some of the strongest moments in a video game that I've played, uh, in a while. So if you like JRPGs because of story, and a cast of characters that travels together and gets to know each other and develops together, um, I think this game is going to satisfy you there. We talked a lot about how bad I think the combat is, how unsatisfying we both feel about the combat. Um, If you need a game to mechanically satisfy you, to get you through 60-plus hours, this is going to be a a coin flip, whether or not you're able to. But for me, the story was enough to keep me going. Um, Even in those times where I was like, I don't like what's going on in the story right now, The promise of things that I was just waiting to pay off kept me going, and then those payoffs were worth it. They're worth the wait. So it's a recommendation for me with qualifications. Uh, I'm not recommending this game to everybody. Um, And like I said earlier, as time passes and I forget about how bored I was in boss fights and I just remember the story moments and stuff like that, I'll listen to the soundtrack when I'm working um, because, you know, it's Xenoblade music. It's good music. Um, I'll remember those story moments and I'll I'll probably think more positively about this game in six months than I do right now. Uh, So, yeah, there's my recommendation with qualifications.
1: Yeah, uh, perfectly fine with me. I agree with all that.
0: Before we get into spoilers, we got to take care of a little housekeeping here. So first things first, uh, Colby, where can people find Switch It Up? What are you guys doing out there? Uh, you can find
1: Switch It Up basically on all your podcast streaming platforms, Apple, Spotify, all that good stuff. Um, if you are so inclined and have liked what I have been selling here up to this point, uh, please leave a rating and review, um, on, on this show and Switch It Up. Why not? Spread, spread the, spread the wealth around here. Uh, you can find us there again, uh, just your All Things Nintendo podcast primarily. If you're into this game, um, we'll probably have an episode on it by the time this is out. So. If you can't get enough Xenoblade in your life, go check out the episode over there. And yeah, just that's where you can find Switch It Up. Um, got some good stuff going on over there. Very excited. Just a passion project of ours. And the small community that we have found ourselves in is a reason to keep it going. So thank you to you and all the other indie podcasters out there in our community for keeping the fire burning.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm definitely going to listen when your Xenoblade 3 episode comes out because I want to hear the two of you talk about it um, and kind of get into it the way that you can it's gonna i gonna be it's always you know always a different vibe when you hear different people talk about the same game um even if it is the same game so uh, i'll be on the lookout for that too for sure everyone listening you can find links to switch it up down in the show notes so that you don't have to search anything just go down click a few buttons you'll be there um as far as tales from the backlog goes same thing as always as colby said ratings and reviews are super helpful for indie podcasts like us um I would really appreciate it if you take a moment to write a review. Um very very helpful. Other things that are cool are joining the Discord server for tales from the backlog and come and talk about Xenoblade 3 with us. Um now that we have a couple people in there that have beaten it because it's a long ass game, um we would love to have you. We're talking about other games, we're talking about movies, we're talking about TV shows, all kinds of stuff. Um You can also support the show on Patreon if you're so inclined. You would be my hero if you did that, but I'm certainly not pressuring you. You'll find links to everything down in the show notes, as well as, the last thing, my other podcast called A Top 3 Podcast, where we do top three lists. So if you want to hear me talk about something that's not video games, that's the spot. So, Colby and I are going to take a break, and when we come back, it is spoiler time for Xenoblade Chronicles colby and i are back and it's time to talk spoilers for xenoblade chronicles 3 and we're going to jump right to literally the last thing you learn in the game so this is your warning this is real fucking spoiler time if you don't want to be spoiled on the entire thing get out so the world explained as it's told in the game you kind of learn in reverse order how this world came to be, um, because if you if you give it any thought, and if you were listening to the spoiler section, if you're still listening because you just want to know what's going on, um, and you thought that this world seems artificial, people are not supposed to be born when they're teenagers and only live for ten years, right? Um, that's what's going on here. So it, something that I this like blew my fucking mind when I learned that this was what the opening cutscene was is the worlds of Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and Xenoblade Chronicles 2 colliding and merging. And the world that we have here, uh, the the world, how do you pronounce the name of the world? I never even attempted it. Ionios. Ionios, okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah, actually, a, a cool fact about that, Ionios in Greek means without beginning or end. No shit. That makes a lot of sense. Right away telling you about the endless now that we will be talking about. I am sure in greater detail as we go through this yeah. spoiler section.
0: Yeah, okay, so I'm glad that I didn't like I'm glad I don't have that bone where I'm like that sounds like a Greek word. I'm going to look up what that means like right at the <laughs> beginning of the game, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're just like, oh no, spoil myself.
0: Yeah. So, um this when I found out that this was what was going on cuz I was wondering the whole time through Because I already said I don't catch these little subtle references to Xenoblade 1 and 2. I was wondering, like, what does this game have to do with Xenoblade 1 and 2? And I saw some names that were repeated, uh, like locations that I recognized from Xenoblade 2. But I was like, maybe they just use the same name. I don't know. But what actually happened is these worlds merged together. The opening cutscene, I was coy about this earlier, but it's a fucking planet coming at uh (laughs) where what noah's looking at and he's looking up at it and i was i had the same expression on my face i was like they're gonna a planet a moon or something is gonna crash into this like what's going on here but that's the world of i believe xenoblade chronicles 2 that's coming if i remember right
1: i think so too Uh, but yeah that's when the world's freeze like again like the, just back to the dramatic irony in the very beginning like uh, you didn't know it was that much dramatic irony but like by the time you get to the game's end it is weird how you work in reverse with the plot right like that's something that is because like by the when you're fighting the boss like you're kind of figuring out like oh this is how this, is, this, is how this game's going to end and then you also in turn figure out oh this is how this game started
0: yeah yep um, so what you're seeing in the opening cutscene is the two worlds about to collide and when the two worlds got close enough to each other, they're able to communicate. Uh, so the two queens, Amelia and Nia, who are characters in Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and 2, uh, Nia's one of your they're actually both of them, they're party members uh, in those games. Um, they talk to each other and figured out a way to not make the planets violently explode when they cross paths, basically, of the worlds. So they created this system called Origin, um, which is a way to kind of digitize like the consciousness of all the people and kind of hold them in a stasis of sorts until the planets are separated again so that they can go back. Is that, am I understanding that right?
1: I believe that is correct. Yes. So the Xenoblade lore is weird. So the world, the world (laughs) was originally one planet and then it got split into two. And now it's coming back together again, and that story is that would that, that would take a lot of explaining and a lot of Xenoblade Chronicles one and two lore. So I'll keep it out of this episode. But mm-hmm. yeah, essentially they get together once the worlds came in close enough that they're able to contact each other through like light stones, which is never explained. You're just like, oh, okay, sure.
0: It doesn't need to be. Let's just let's just yeah, be like, like, okay, light stones. Moving on. Yeah, yeah they, had, they, <laughs> they, they,
1: they have they have six G and they're able to communicate. So yeah. Yeah. Origin is basically like a digitalized bank of all the souls and people that die. And then, like maybe to make them reborn once the worlds are safe again. Like, I don't know. like I really don't. But that's as far as it, as it goes, really.
2: Yeah.
0: The, and that's as far as I need to understand it, honestly. Um, so the purpose of Origin is to preserve the people, to preserve their lives, preserve the cultures, preserve everything. Um, and Kind of just just keep it all from being destroyed when these two worlds cross paths. Uh, basically, um, the thing that I'm a little bit less confident about is exactly what it is that created the forever now. So when the two worlds crossed, instead of passing by each other, they were put into a stasis, um, which is the world that we inhabit in the game. Is this kind of constructed world in stasis right um correct and i'm just not exactly sure on how that was created
1: so our primary antagonist mobius zed which is just z but they call him zed not sure why but british he he, fair enough he (laughs) is he is basically born out of the fears of all the people who have died that like this wouldn't work essentially and that Mm -hmm. they just wanted to you know, live and be reborn again and eventually enough people became like that as to the point where he kind of gets enough power to take on his own form. And he's basically a calamity gang is the best way I can put it. But he essentially imprisons Melia, who I think Melia then is used to power origin. I think her power is enough to keep the world in a stasis like event.
0: Okay. And um so so Zed really reminded me of like stories about um AI in a catastrophe where like the AI's purpose is to keep humans alive. And then it just does that by any means necessary. And it kind of reminds me of that. Like Zed's not a person. Zed is a desire brought to life, basically essentially which yes. then accumulated enough power to shape this kind of this constructed world in stasis to the way that it wanted basically to stay in power.
1: C- correct. Again, it's all a little confusing, but it-, it does make sense once you cut through like the bullshit of like yeah. what's going on. So mm-hmm. Zed, born out of born out of like fear, is manifested out of fear. Imprisons Melia, forces Nia to essentially exile herself, and in turn, there is no opposition to the endless now he creates. Hence the word Ionius.
0: Right. So they bring up this phrase "forever now." I'm um, a lot in here. And the idea, we we should have gotten the idea at some point that this is not a natural world state, you know? Like I said, people being born when they're like 12 years old or whatever, <laughs> only living for 10 years, the flame clocks, how? How is this all a thing? And the answer to that is that it was constructed this way so that Zed could kind of maintain this forever now um this status quo basically uh kind of a way to keep themselves endlessly fed and energized and supported
1: yeah so the way the world stays in stasis is these flame clocks they power the mobius and when a flame clock dies not only do all the citizens affiliated with it die the console or mobius i don't know why they have two different names for it they do as well so Essentially, the endless killing and endless war is what keeps the cycle of it keeps cycle of time like stable so they can constantly be reborn, constantly kill each other. Life Force goes into the Flame Clock. Flame Clock powers Colony and, and Mobius. Rinse and repeat. Just forever. He's basically trying to create an endless cycle of violence, which is not too uncommon of a theme in Xenoblade.
0: Yeah, I just thought that this was really cool that this was the reason that this was all created. It was all born out of good intentions, basically to keep everybody safe while these two worlds were going to pass through each other or something like that. Um, but it just got corrupted so horribly. And Zed just like seized this opportunity, took power, created this world that would endlessly support himself and Mobius who work for him. The other consoles uh, work for him. So yeah, I just thought this was like a an awesome kind of way for this world to be born. Basically, it's really, really creative.
1: It's different, right? Like, I've never heard of this concept before, like in video games. And yeah, like you said, it's super intriguing. Like how much they tell you without telling you in the very beginning is just, again, just perfect storytelling, in my opinion. V- very very cool way to introduce like the the, con- the the main conflict of our game is how are we going to break this essentially time loop
0: yeah so the citizens in here they are the souls of the people who lived on those two worlds as they were colliding they were digitized and then they got brought into this endless cycle of rebirth uh, from these you know clone pods basically uh, you learn Uh, maybe one third or halfway through the game that when someone dies, they're reborn again. And you learn this because you found a, a dead uni in one of the uh, story quests.
1: That was eerie, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. One of the first moments where I was like, whoa, hold on. Like it had my attention already. Now I'm like, there can't be two unis. What happened here? And she has like memories of a Mobius killing her, but she's obviously not dead. She's right here. So like, what the fuck?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's, that was that was like, because like, again, we were talking about like there's a little bit of a slog after chapter one. And once yeah. you get there, it's like, oh shit, like, okay, I'm all the way back in. Like, what is this? And it got pretty brutal way she died given that uh, hints that the the Moby's just like jammed his like finger through her like eye socket. that got, that's a brutal way to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's rough. And I, this was part of my frustration with the pacing is because you see this scene and they don't Mention this, or like like uni is shaken up about it for a couple scenes, but no one there's no resolution to this. you don't find out why this is happening until later when you meet M and n, and you're like, "Oh, there's another Noah and Mio there. there are <laughs> duplicates of people, oh God, I had this later, but like they are wearing the smallest masks." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the people in the game, they were like, I don't know who this could be. And I'm like, dude, it's wearing, they're, they might as well just be wearing glasses. It's obviously Noah and Mia. The,
1: they're wearing the Mardi Gras, like mask. That you yeah, to put. Yeah. <laughs> like the Perry, the uh, platypus, like when he puts on the hat, that's the only way Dr. Doofenspirits can see him. Like that's basically what it is.
0: Yeah. It's, it was ridiculous that like, I didn't have a whole lot of times where I was like, Hey, come on characters. Like you're doing that thing where characters miss a super obvious thing just for dramatic effect. I was like, come on, you're not this stupid.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. I'm like, come <laughs> on, you, it's, it's not that hard, man. He just let his hair down and she also let her hair down. Like we, we got to figure this out eventually.
2: Yeah.
0: So kind of back to that world uh, explanation, just talking through it. Cause I think it's really cool. Um, the Mobius in this game are all seem to be people who have died And Zed sees an opportunity to kind of use them, use their desire for power or eternal life or whatever it is that they want, sees an opportunity to use them to keep the status quo going because the Mobius are out there basically cracking the whip on the people. Keep them fighting, keep them in line, uh, make sure that this endless war continues.
1: Yeah, little do we know it's because if they don't, they'll die as well. So right. they're the ones. They're think, the ones I'm in I'm tr- not sure if the, they
0: know that either.
1: Do they? I don't think they do. Which is really cool. Like I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I forget who explains that. Maybe it's the one Mobius at the very end of the game who built all the flame clocks that explains that to you. But yeah, it's a really cool way of um, just again further world building and further giving the villains some kind of identity because they don't really have one in this game, which is unfortunate. Like fucking Zed's watching a movie the entire game.
0: Yeah, he's chilling. He's he, he enjoying really this world that he's created. Yeah. It's so just sick. So, speaking of breaking flame clocks, you learn up pretty early on in the story that you can that Noah can break flame clocks. And this is kind of like the last piece of this puzzle that they created this system, but the flame clocks are not, you know, eternal. You can break them. Um Noah has a sword that I never really figured out why it's able to do this, but he can. Uh, magic swords are par for the course in Xenoblade. I don't ask too many questions.
1: His his sword is made of origin metal. It's the same metal that okay. used to make the flame clocks.
0: Gotcha. Makes sense then. And he had it because uh, what's his name? Riku just Riku. had it. What's Riku's deal?
1: The better question for Riku is who's Riku's master, which yeah. is led
0: to be Ricky
1: from Xenoblade Chronicles One. He's like he's some sort of descendant or follower from him because okay. I think that's where he got Lucky Seven from. Riku didn't build Lucky Seven. Yeah. So I the, the the bigger question about Riku is who who was his like master or like like master um nopon Smith or whatever like that yeah. that's the bigger question with him
0: definitely possible that like it's po- anything's possible is what I'm trying to say the worlds have merged the possessions and people and souls from the worlds have all been smashed together so. Anything is possible, basically, but it does make sense that a, a nopon of some reputation, basically, uh, a warrior nopon would be um, involved with Riku somehow. It's sure as hell not Torah from Xenoblade no. Two.
1: <laughs> now he talk way more.
0: So yeah, um, the thing I like about this breaking the flame clocks thing is it, it gives you something like a purpose on your quest. Whenever you find a new colony, Noah's like yo, we can take care of that flame clock problem. Uh, but what I liked about this is it quickly becomes apparent that you can break the flame clock, you can take away the pressure of like living, knowing that you're going to have to kill people to stay alive. You can remove that. But everyone still has a shitty existence that's only going to last up to 10 years. And it took a few of these for that to really sink in for me. And I really like that. I like how breaking the flame clock solves half of their problems, but not all of them and not the biggest one, arguably.
1: Yeah, it doesn't bail you out of your 10 year existence, which is something that I thought I was like you. It took me a while to realize that. I'm like, oh, wait, like we're kind of just taking away their purpose of life. Like, sure, there's no pressure to go out and do terrible deeds, but now they're living without a life's purpose, which is could be like an agonizing existence. I imagine like living with Okay, I don't have to kill anything, but what am I going to do with the rest of my life knowing that like when the calendar hits the 20th, like that's it, I'm out of here. So, yeah. Again, that's one of those questions the game asks that is really powerful and really well brought out in character interactions. Is there a is there a colony that like doesn't want you to break their clock? I haven't come across that yet in the game. That would be really cool.
0: There's um there's a colony, I wrote down Colony Tau And I found them in chapter four. I don't remember if they were on the Is that Juniper,
1: the one with the bow and arrow?
0: Yeah, it's the one in the ruins. Um, And they are, I don't remember if they like say don't break our flame clock, but they're basically like, who gives a shit? None of this matters. Like, break our flame clock, don't break it. It's not going to improve our lives. Like, whatever. They're basically just like hanging out. They're not even trying to fight anymore. They're just chilling, waiting for the flame clock to run out. Um, they say that their console has abandoned them. I never really got resolution on that, who that was, if they ever answered it. Do you know?
1: I have no idea. I'm sure it's, yeah. I'm sure it's like, <laughs> okay. I'm sure it's one of those 100 XP discussions.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I, I'm glad that you brought up how the game asks those questions because that is what the middle part of the game is, is mostly exploring Noah's breaking flame clocks, it's not solving all the problems that people have. How are they dealing with it? Some of them are really happy. Some of them lose their purpose. And it kind of asks asks that question. Like, is it better to live with a purpose if your purpose is like terrible or is it better to live with no purpose and just kind of wait for that 10 years to run out?
1: Yeah. Like, is it, is it, is it better to just like, like serve for a great evil or just like, not serve at all and then have no purpose in life. It's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky line to walk. And, you know, the game does a great job of asking it. Obviously they leave it open interpretation to the players as, as to how they answer it. But yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting how, you know, you've some connies that are just like, eh, fuck it. Who cares? And another ones are like, yes, please break it. I feel like Ethel's one of those characters that like now has no purpose. And that leads yeah. her to do what she does with Kamaravi at the, yeah. when her time comes. So that was a great way of bringing that full circle for her character, at least, and Kamarabi, because they're presented as just like absolute warmongers who, who, whose sole purpose is to like take life on the battlefield, and that is what they are known for. So when you take away that from Ethel, when you break her flame clock, it kind of like, it kind of sa- it paints the picture for her ultimate ending, and I think it, it's a a great highlight in that game. Another great moment when the two Pharaonises are just become monuments of, you know, what they embodied.
0: So there's a whole range of reactions that the colonies have to breaking the flame clocks. Some of them are overjoyed and they have a renewed purpose and they want to join up the fight against Mobius. Some of them are just like, what do we do now? Like we don't, we don't have anything to look forward to. We don't have anything to sustain us and motivate us. And all things in between, too. It's, it's one of the, you know, we talk about how maybe it drags in the middle of the game, but what you are doing is exploring these things. They're just like the main plot stuff in the middle of the game, I thought was really like weird and not very well explained or well explored. And that's kind of the next thing to talk about is the two main Mobius that you deal with uh, throughout the game. So, you have a couple of characters that become Mobius, um, and I, I think what they're doing with both of these is they're trying to take characters that were once friendly and turn them into Mobius, and make you see the motivations that real people have to become Mobius and give in to the temptation to join the ultimate evil in order to solve their own problems. I think that's what they're going for here. However, both of these. Yorin and Shania are absolute swings and misses, in my opinion. I hate everything about both of these characters. Um, so, let's start with Yorin. Um, before we start with Yorin, are you with me or did you enjoy these stories?
1: I'm a little more forgiving on Shania than you are. I agree with you on Yorin. I agree with you on what they're after, but the problem is I think they do a fantastic job of painting the picture of why someone would become, want to become Mobius when Noah's in the dream sequence. And that happens before either of these, like, reveals are revealed. Like, it goes through Noah's entire life as to why he, like, he shows him the cycle, why he wants to become Mobius, save what he knows he can save, live in his endless now. I think that's a perfect explanation for why someone would want to become Mobius. I think that Yorn and Shania's reasons are a lot weaker, and I think in fourth are a lot more forgettable in the grand scheme of things. But yeah. I'm a little more easy on Shania than you are. I think reading <laughs> some of your notes here that kind of made me laugh out loud when I was going over stuff for the show. But I agree with you on on Yorn completely. So let's just get into that one because we're in yeah. agree with right. a lot of points so here.
0: We're going to drag Yorin through the mud, uh, which is fitting because that's what his Mobius power is about.
1: Uh, is it though, or is it just a a, a, a blip in the system?
0: It is, honestly. So Joran is a childhood friend, if you're listening and didn't play. Yorin is a childhood friend of Lance, Noah, and Uni. He's like the fourth member of their group. He died in a battle when he was very young in their lifespan. They show this in a cutscene pretty early in the game. They show him dying. Um, and he comes back later, and he's Mobius. And he is the most cackling-ass, mustache-twirling, I am evil for the sake of evil character that you could possibly draw up. And he su- he was such a sweet and kind of shy uh character when he was you know with Noah and them. And there there's so many reasons why this is a huge swing and miss, but the main reason is he became Mobius because he thought everybody hated him and thought he was worthless. When there is absolutely no evidence for that, no. they show a bunch of cutscenes and everyone's so friendly to him. They're like including him in the group. It's like it's. I mean, obviously, you okay? You can say like that they're showing the cutscene from a, a certain perspective, and maybe that's not how Joran felt. But the game is giving me zero evidence that he was ever bullied or um, thought to be worthless or any of these things that he claims for why he joined Mobius. And just from that perspective, this this is awful. And it gets worse, but I'll stop there for just a second.
1: Yeah, Lance is kind of a prick to him. But other than that, like Uni and, Uni and Noah have his back. And even Lance is just kind of like a tough love kind of guy. He's more That's so focused on... Is.
0: Yeah, he's a dick to everybody.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's a dick to everyone. So like, again, like the mock battle scene when they're both really young, like he's the one who I think... I think he saved Noah or someone and like yeah. they have this nice scene. Then the scene of then the scene of him like building the dolls of the four of them, like that, I thought that was really sweet. And like yeah. everyone was like everyone like stood up for him and was like, Oh, this is great, like you know, you might be a great fighter, but like you still have a purpose here, and he just doesn't, I guess. Yeah. Like, I don't know. And like he's not even the console calling the shots. It's his partner. So I thought it was a cool reveal when he was the Mobius in the very beginning of the game, when you fought in chapter one. That he was a mm-hmm. part of that with um, Consul D, who is, who the, he's, he's actually being, he's actually bullying him. So if, you, if it was vice versa, where Yorin like turned in Mobius to become human, that would make more sense because Consul D is actually a dick to him in the way that he thinks that Noah, Lance, and Uni were. So I agree with you completely.
0: From from all the evidence that we had, all the story beats that we had, nobody was mean to Jorin except for Lance. And he's he's just like that to everybody. So that sucks. Joran shows up. He has this very cool and very scary ability to make doppelgangers of people uh, out of mud and have them attack and stuff. You beat him in a fight. The first time he shows up as Mobius, you see him several more times throughout the game. He never does the doppelganger thing again. And it's, I was just thinking like, is he going to make doppelgangers of Noah and make, you know, fake Noah go out and cause trouble around the world? Nope. Is he going to make doppelgangers of the party and you have to fight yourselves? Nope. That doesn't happen either. Just happens for one scene. You kill the mud uh, puppets and he never tries again. <laughs> just another, just why did they like cut that for time or something later?
1: I mean, I, I mean time I and mean, what's the difference between 16, 70 hours. Like let's be yeah, honest exactly. here.
0: Yeah. Time is, time is not a real thing when you're it's talking about It's irrelevant and
1: it's irrelevant in this case, honestly, but yeah, Jorn is just, a I feel like it's a, you're like, oh, I feel bad for this character. I don't, like, when he, like, I don't know, when he, like, converts to Christianity at the very end, right before he dies and, like, ascends to heaven, like, I don't really feel bad for him at all when he, when
0: what happens happens yeah. to him. And um, I I think, I thought that they're trying to set up this redemption arc with him, where he's going to see the error in his ways and help or something I like
1: that. I, I didn't want that to be honest. I didn't want him to join the party. I kind of just wanted well, to kill him the entire time.
0: Yeah, because he's annoying. His story is stupid, and then he shows up at the end and he tries to kill Queen Nia for no real reason. How did um, Nia survive that? <laughs> well, she's a magic queen. A podcast <laughs> that I really that I really love. Uh, watch out for fireballs. Um, one of the hosts, uh, Gary, on the show. Uh, he describes some characters with this really, really apt quote, evil characters that have nothing else to them, where it's like, he's evil, you see. But not only is he evil, he's also cruel. And that is exactly what Jorin is. There is nothing to him perfect. except just, I'm going to do the most evil thing possible. And then he dies, and you're supposed to feel some sort of emotion when he dies. But my emotion was, thank fucking God, I don't have to see him again.
1: That was my exact motion, too. Um, I'm not even sure if I could sympathize with Noah Lance and Uni in that moment. Like, when watching their friend die. Like, this dude has been a pain in your ass for 40 hours. Like, there's no way you could still feel bad about him dying, which, no, nope. Obviously, <laughs> they do because they're heroes in a JRPG. But, yeah. Yeah. Yorin, like, when he got out of the picture, I'm like, okay, now, it's, now, now it's go time.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. The other one, um, Shania. So, Shania lives in the city uh, with Gondor and uh, Monica. And I don't want to talk too much about Gondor. She is the most annoying character in this game. God damn it.
1: <laughs> Ineffective cursing at its finest.
0: Oh, God. Yeah. I yeah, sh- She is very um, edgy and she is very cool because she calls her mom a bitch. It's very, very affecting. Good job, Monolith Soft. <laughs> so... Uh, you meet Shania. She lives in this city. Um, and I do want to talk about the city a little bit because it's really cool because uh, the city is not beholden to this system. This city is where people live normal lives. Uh, they somehow exist outside of the Mobius-created system, even though they live in the world and can interact with everybody. This is not a an artificial place. This is a place where people have natural lives. They're born as babies, and they live until they're very old. And the moments... When your crew goes into the city and meets these people for the first time and sees what life could be like, um, it reinvigorates them because they see what life could be like. I thought this was really sweet and really cute seeing how they are all like they see a baby for the first time and they're like, what is that? I don't know what it grabbed my finger, like that moment where it grabs their finger and stuff. I was like. I have a cold, dead heart in a lot of situations. Even I was like, "Oh, that is so cute, right
1: there." Yeah, that was that was one. Of, that was like a tear-jerking moment for me, honestly, because like that's chapter five. That's just one of the many emotional moments in that chapter. I yeah. That 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 that's a defining moment for me in this game. Is that entire scene when the baby grabs Mio's finger and like her ears perk up and Tion's like freaking out, like, "Let me get a turn." Yeah, yeah, that was like that was kind of like a tear-jerking moment for me, honestly. And then it's it followed up with a great line that you have in the notes here. <laughs>
0: Um yeah, it's they're in a, a hospital where there's a newborn uh baby and there's a couple they're having a very a sweet moment. Everyone takes their turns, you know, seeing the baby, the baby grabs their fingers and stuff and then someone comes in the room and they're like who wants to learn how babies are made and everyone's like I do. <laughs> <laughs> really funny. But I I really like this city part because um this is what 30 40 hours into the game for me. You've spent all this time in this just shit world that our characters inhabit. And then you see natural life uh, where people have emotions other than needing to kill people to stay alive. Like there are couples, people fall in love, people have families, and this is a totally foreign concept to our party. And I really loved these parts in the city that explore them like learning about what life could be.
1: Yeah, it's because uh, there's a lot. of part. Because first of all, this has been your objective since chapter one is to get here and you don't to get, get here until chapter sword. five. Yeah. yeah. Get to the great sword that pierces the land. But yeah. Like when they're asking, like when Monica's like, Oh, a uh, Guernica, the guy who gave you the horsepower, he was my father. And like, what does that mean? Like all yeah. that stuff is just <laughs> like, something Oh shit. Like they, they literally don't know what that, what that means. And yeah, it's just a super, the city's great. It, it does so much for the world building. And like you said, it just, deli- when you first meet, when you first get there, uh delivers some powerful punches as far as the story goes. It's like this is what this is what this is what's supposed to be like, guys. And this is what and this is what you are fighting for.
2: Yeah.
0: And again, I'm not quite sure how the city exists, how it was created, or how it exists without Zed's knowledge, or how it exists outside of his sphere of influence. No I, idea. I don't
1: know. Like they have those eye patches that when they go out into the world they can't be detected by Mobius. And but like <laughs> Console N like ravaged the city like eons ago in yeah. to get the embers to resurrect M, which I'm sure we'll get to here in a little bit. But yeah, how he doesn't just go there whenever they cause a problem and just wreck shit is beyond me. But yeah, I don't know how they because because the city can travel, it can move. Yeah, because they try to blow it up and it gets moved. So like I don't I, I don't know the logistics of it to be honest. Probably should look
0: into it. Yeah, but you know, if I'm being honest, any kind of like unfulfilled curiosity about how it works is way overshadowed by how nice these moments are in the city Hundred percent, and how the fact that seeing this gives the party just this intense resolve of like, we wanted to change it because we thought we could. Now we know like what we're fighting for, what we're aiming for was we, we want this people in the city are living nice lives. We want this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice callback. I I don't know if you know. There's a show on the CW, Arrow. It's my probably my favorite TV show. It's a bit, it's about the Green Arrow and the DC comics. And oh
2: right, yeah, yeah.
1: In the very in the season one finale, Malcolm Merlin, the bad guy, tells Oliver, he's like, "You can't beat me because deep down you don't know what you're fighting for." And it's mm-hmm. just like a it's a nice callback to that. Like the part, like the, the for a while it was okay. We're fighting Mobius because it's the right thing to do. And now they have like this newfound sense of purpose, which what makes happens in this chapter later hits so much harder.
0: Yeah. But before we can get to that, we got to talk to your favorite Mobius. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So Shania was a kind of guide for the party, kind of giving them a tour around the city. And then at some point she just betrays everybody, sells them out to uh, the consuls and Mobius And they get caught, which uh, sets up the events of the end of chapter five, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But her motivations, very similar to Yorin, are stupid. It's it's bad writing, in my opinion. It's bad imagination. So she says uh, she wants to become Mobius because this is a direct quote from her. If you preserve the status quo, we might do better next time which doesn't make any fucking sense because there is no next time you're preserving the status quo. That's what status quo means. Nothing changes. This is beyond stupid. I think
1: it's not great motivation. It's fleshed out better. And I'm going to, I'm going to call, um, it's her hero quest. It's not Senna's it's Shania's hero quest. Uh, it's fleshed out a little better there, but right off the bat, it's just like, I, why? Like I, I you kind of knew cause she's been following the party the whole game. He didn't know it until they show you the scenes of when she's actually doing it. But yeah, her being a double agent and being like, we might have a chance to do better the next time. It's just like, no, like you're just going to be reborn and do the same shit. Like, how do you not like understand this?
0: Even if, even if you like one of those situations where you know better, like as the player, you know, better than the character, because obviously, you know, she's not going to fix anything by becoming Mobius, but that idea that becoming Mobius means that you're going to change things. That's not what Mobius do. And it doesn't make any sense. You know how you do improve things over time is by allowing people to have children and teach their children to be better than them. That's how things change. And she came from the society where people are doing that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um,
1: No, it doesn't add up
0: regarding that, that quest. Um, (sighs) does Senna get another quest, another hero quest? No. But which is it's that's why I wrote it down here. Everyone gets a hero quest.
1: Yeah. I have it in all caps in mind. Senna's hero quest is about Shania and they like weren't even friends. It's the dumbest shit.
0: Yeah. They try to make it out to be this like, you know, Senna's quest is like she's going to like fight for the soul of her friend. There weren't friends. They met like they met. They had a few conversations and then Shania betrayed everybody. So,
1: yeah, I. It's forced. It's very forced, and it sucks because I feel like there's a lot more depth to Senna than they explored. Like the the scene, the scene in particular is when she's like closing her eyes, terrified of the console in the end of chapter five when they're fighting against her. But yeah, yeah, like, it sucks because all the other hero quests are not all of them are great. Uh, there's a couple here that stand above the others, specifically Mios, obviously. But yeah, um, Shania, uh, she's a character, all right, and I didn't feel bad when I killed her permanently at all
0: nope i don't remember exactly why but she jumps off um a high place trying to kill herself and i was like okay gone basically like <laughs> the feeling oh, no. you get if you have a if you have a mouse in the house and you open up the door and it runs out and you're like okay that's over when senna jump or when uh uh when what's her name shania uh did she not kill herself she shot herself in the head she shot herself in the head that's right when she shot herself in the head. I was like, okay, that's done. Can we move on now?
1: Except it wasn't.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And like you said, it's kind of bullshit that every other character got a hero quest that was 100% about them and their story. And Senna's was, uh, let's bring back Shania, which no one wants. No, not at all. So those suck. Both of the main Mobius that you want to, because the other Mobius that you meet, there's like 15 of them. They're all just cackling assholes in different flavors. I hate every single one of them. They try to make <laughs> me feel things with Yorin and Shania, but I, their their writing and their motivations are terrible. This is like uncharacteristically bad from this writing staff. I think.
1: Yeah, they're way wor- they're just way worse versions of Metal Face from Xenoblade One.
0: Yeah, but there is a redemption to the Mobius. Uh, so let's get into that. Let's do it. Along the way, we meet N and M, which we talked about before. They are very obviously Noah and Mio wearing evil masks. Noah has an evil haircut. They are the original Noah and Mio, the originals. And we, tell, we get the story of them um, in Chapter 5, I think is the first time we actually like talk to them for any extended time. Correct. Right? Yes. Do Chapter 5 does so much work for this game. It's yeah, kind of Chap- ridiculous. Yeah the, yeah,
1: the end of chapter four, like you, that's when the revelation of the fake Kevis Queen shows up, and N is there, but you don't really talk to him. Chapter five is when the bread gets buttered.
0: Yep. So uh, the story of them, um, they are Mobius, and they are the original Noah and Mio, and I, I just, I was very much lost by the Yoren and Shania storylines. This storyline, this is the real shit. This is the good shit. I love this. Um, so the original Noah and Mio fell in love, um, and together they went to fight Zed. He offered them a choice. Um, if I understand this correctly, he offered them the choice of, uh, basically, you know, you want to continue this fight or the endless now so that Noah and could spend eternity with Mio. Which is what he wanted more than anything else. Is that correct? So
1: I was reading up on this today for this exact moment because it's very critical that this is explained well because it paints the rest of the picture for the story. Okay. So Noah and Mio were originally mem- were originally members of the Lost Numbers, which is the city's army, if you will. Uh-huh. And they would f- and they were fighting Mobius throughout their lifetimes. They always were defeated. In the cutscenes, it shows like them always dying together. They eventually give up that life. In some, because they're reincarnated, they're not reborn. They are like reincarnated because of their intentions are like so pure. I guess is the reason. Mm. But they resign that life, and that's when they have the child. Like they have a kid. Mio always dies before Noah. They they like they can't raise their kid together. Zed then approaches Noah, offers him the endless now, to which he accepts. He becomes Mobius. Destroys the original city to collect these things called embers to resurrect his Mio and not have her be some other form of Mio. Mm -hmm. So Mio never willingly chose to be Mobius and that will come back to be important because she grows to resent N and all that. But so no, our Noah and Mio that we play as in the game are essentially the re embodiments of N and M's ideals, I guess is how I would
0: put it. Because, um, they shouldn't exist at the same time. And that's something that when you see both of them, you've seen Uni is here. We saw another Uni, but she was dead. They shouldn't be existing at the same time. And so, yeah, we, we learn why N and M are here, but also Noah and Mio. So that fact that N became Mobius to live eternal life with Mio and Mio is not on board with this. Uh, didn't have Mio didn't have a choice in this is key. Um, And I like it when uh, stories do this, where one character makes a huge decision for two people and they, (laughs) the other person has no say in it whatsoever. So like you said, M as she's called now has to do all these horrible things as part of Mobius and grows to hate and for making her do that. Um, And what he's become also uh, because he's the, the stereotypical, villainous killing machine, basically just going around killing whatever needs killed.
1: It's a cackling madman.
0: Yeah. (laughs) He gets even worse than that too. Yeah, he does. So M or sorry, not M. Yeah. M begins communicating with queen Nia and kind of setting up um, a backup plan, trying to find a way out basically until they meet the party and M finds a way out because Uh, One of the storylines that we've been going through the entire game that I was really enjoying is that Mio is a little bit older than the rest of the group and her time's about to run out. And this becomes something in maybe like chapter three and four, they start to explore this where she's, she looks at her, you know, her tattoo with how much um, time she has left. She starts to feel like she's losing power uh, it's really getting to her that she's running out of time, and this is an opportunity for M to kind of help her out, help Mio out, and then also help herself. And it sets up the end of chapter five, which is just chef kiss. So, chapter five, and specifically the end. We said after they got captured because Shania betrayed the party because Shania is an idiot. We go into. A um, a sequence like a long sequence of cutscenes where uh, you fight N and M, you beat the shit out of them in the boss fight because you're over leveled, and then you lose in the cutscene because it's a JRPG. Uh, this was the only fight that had an interesting mechanic. Um, did you feel the same way about this? Like when you when something happened, you're like, "Holy shit, I need to do something different here."
1: I was kind of pissed that I figured it out, to be honest.
0: And um, didn't let you figure it out
1: yeah it made for a great scene with um them all fighting each other but uh, first of all music incredible in this scene the flute really just comes through here puts mm-hmm. the mobius theme to shame honestly but yeah um this was cool i like the mechanic of m mind controlling the party into fighting each other yeah again i wish tyon didn't figure it out and he was almost like oh god like i get this is on character that he like figures it out in four seconds but I would have loved to, like, have been surprised. Like, wait, why is Senna, like, attacking me? And have her be like... And then, like, hit my art and then toggle over to her and be like, oh, shit, like, she's being mind-controlled or something like that. So, again, like, for you actually had to use strategy in this fight, but you didn't really because, A, you were leveled and B, once that plus button popped up, it was over.
2: Yeah.
0: And I said... It's the only fight that made me change my strategy. But what I mean by change my strategy is find the character that has the, the little paper airplanes flying around it and hit that character until they go away. And the kicker is that only happened one time in my fight. I only had me to too. do that one time uh, because I was over leveled and the the boss fight was over really quickly. So, like, I, I <laughs> very, very faint praise for this fight for making me do literally anything. But... There's not very satisfying. the The
1: bar was so low, and you just was, step yeah. over the bar, and you're like, "This is yeah. awesome!" Yes, they, Strategy. Ste- they
0: stepped over the bar one time, one time. So you beat them in that fight, and and M, you lose in the cutscene. Uh, Lance and Senna try to overload their inner link to cause a big explosion. We saw two consoles do that earlier, uh, but that doesn't work. They tried to sacrifice themselves. It was a a big moment. The party gets captured, they're stripped of their powers, and they're just thrown in jail, and they're going to wait until Mio's time is out. And oh. um, at the end of this month, there is a kind of, it's like a public execution, basically. If they're not going to kill them, they're just going to put them there and let their time run out so everyone can see.
1: Well, this is also when N explains that people who make their homecoming don't come back.
0: Yeah. So the stakes for Mio here are like insane here because it's like you know the the promo art and everything features mio heavily are they gonna actually kill her here and you have a lot of cutscenes where they're in the jail they're talking and mio is like okay with it she's not like jumping for joy or anything but she's seems like she's very much made peace with this is how it's this is how it's gonna end and the other thing about this is that noah has been mr cool the entire game and he just (sighs) fucking loses it in these scenes.
1: Yeah, he's punching the gate and his knuckles get all bloodied. Oh my god, it's I honest to god, like not a ton of great no no no, not a lot of standout performances voice acting wise, but Harry McIntyre for N and Noah in this particular going back and forth scene, incredible, I think.
0: Yeah. And these are like really drawn out cutscenes too. It's not like you watch like honk. a 1 minute cutscene. It's it's like I want to say like an hour of cutscenes. They really let this breathe. Yeah.
1: But like they've been getting out of these problems the entire game. You're just thinking, okay, how are they going to get out of it? And then when they don't get out of it, it just hurts that much more. I have a question to jump ahead a little bit. Did you think that she would actually die and not come
0: back? You know, always in the back of my head, I'm thinking like they're going to get out of it because this is the type of media I, I wouldn't expect a Xenoblade Chronicles game to kill a main character and not bring them back. That would have been a giant shock to me. But I, at the same time I was watching all these scenes and I was like, how, how are they going to get out of this? They've been stripped of their powers. They've already tried everything they can. How's this going to happen? So how about you?
1: Riku Riku tells Noah to draw Lucky 7. He can't do it. He's just too emotionally distraught. I thought she was gone. I'm going to be honest. I mean, I was, I was crying. I was like sobbing throughout this scene. So, yeah. like, I was emotionally, like, it, it was so well done. And I was, like, actually, like, crying, like, real tears in my room. I, I didn't think she was coming back. I, I did not think she was coming back. Because when, when N tosses Noah the flute and is, like, send her off, I'm like, oh, my God, this yeah, is the, brutal. Uh,
0: fucking brutal, man. Like, you know, I thought, like, I, I had, it was a possibility in my head that she's not coming back. But Xenoblade Chronicles 1, we had characters die and then come back. I can't remember Shulk in specifically. Two. I mean, and uh, what's her face? The, the one who dies in the, the opening oh, Fiora. few hours. Yeah. People die and come back. And, um, Xenoblade two, I don't think this really happens, but, um, I just didn't expect her to be gone forever. Like in my heart of hearts, didn't really expect it. But as I'm watching the cutscenes, I'm starting to panic. I'm like, you are running out of time. Like, you got to do something soon. And they just, they can't do it. And it, it makes this moment so great that, um, they are brought out for this ceremony and time just runs out and Mio dies. And she's like the, she turns into the sparkles (sighs) that float up into the sky. And I was like you, man, I was distraught. I was like, this is a supremely emotional moment. Tears for sure. It's like, um, probably more emotional than anything else in the first two xenoblade games uh for me this moment right here
1: yeah me too like i i'm trying to think of the other ones that maybe when maybe when shulk realizes fiora is alive but that's more of like what the fuck like how is that possible yeah, that, and then that's obviously, a
0: mind-blowing moment Yeah. yeah
1: then i haven't played two and i'm assuming there's moments in two that are like that but I mean, as far as like emotion emotionally evoking me, like I don't know if anything's going to come close to topping this, to be honest.
2: Yeah.
0: Mio is such a likable character. There's like I, I don't really see I don't really see how you can get through this and not have some kind of attachment to Mio, or at least how to get this far and just be like, "Yeah, Mio, I can take her or leave her." you know, I don't really see that. She's she's super likable, and yeah, of the games all the would... people.
1: I'm sorry, the game's been building up this the entire time. Like there's that great scene in chapter four where, no- where Noah's like going over the plan and Mio's like, I don't have any time left. And she like runs off and yeah. then like that's a great scene too. Um, but yeah, like like you said, like if, at this point, if you're not like at least like, wait, like panicking, like that Mio's actually going to die, then again, this probably didn't work for you as a game.
0: Yeah. And like, were you also... Throughout all those scenes when Mio is thinking about how she's running out of time, uh, she freaks out, like you said, um, talking about how, like, you know, this doesn't matter because I'm not going to be here. She goes through this whole range of emotions. Were you also like me in assuming that they're just going to find a way to get around this? You know, they're going to find a way to extend her lifespan or they're going to beat the final boss right on the last day something climactic like that?
1: A hundred percent. I mean, it was a JRPG. I was expecting them. I was expecting some yeah. kind <laughs> of, some kind of storyline BS to come through and save our Mio, but when it doesn't and they can't get out of it. And I think, I actually think it does. It, you don't play the game a lot during this portion, but no. I think a great little stepping stone that can be missed is when you do have control of Noah And all you can do is shake on the prison gates. Yeah. You can't do anything. Like you are literally can't do anything. You were just trapped and you have to shake on the gates until a cutscene plays. I think that is just a minute detail that emphasizes this bigger picture so well. And I remember thinking that like during the moment. I'm like, wait, I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. I can't even go in the menu. Like what is going on here?
0: So we kind of make it through this. It, it's, it's really set up like a public execution and everyone's just forced to watch as uh Mio dies and fades away. And then I forget exactly how this happened. Noah gets hit in the head. Someone bashes him on the head. Right.
1: So what happens is now it is a public execution. Cause N draws lucky seven. Like as he's about to come down, like yes. cut his head off, it goes to black.
2: Okay. Right, right, right. Okay.
1: And now, 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 now the, now the tears are gone. You're just like, what the fuck is happening?
2: Yeah,
0: um, so in this part, um, Noah kind of relives all of these old memories from N. Um, he sees N's choice uh, to make the endless now. Um, I thought these were possible futures, um, but it's all the lives that they led uh, as N and M. Is that right? That
1: is correct. This is essentially this is this is the backstory of N and M. Okay. Basically,
0: so I thought that this was possible futures. Um, at the time it made these scenes like with that kind of context, it made these scenes where it was all these scenes of Noah and Mio basically trying to cheat death and Mio just keeps dying every single time. And Mio just died in the game. So I was like, you know, further enhancing that, like, maybe there is no way to save Mio. She was destined to die here. Seeing that this was backstory, uh, gives it a different context, but still you feel for Noah and Mio; they have a kind of blossoming, like relationship between the two of them. Seeing all these futures or all of these stories play out, uh, you know, where they have a baby, the baby grows up, they're living happily. Mio dies anyway. Uh, all of these things—it's—it's it's like one emotional, just gut punch after another.
1: Yeah, it really is. Whether she gets killed in battle or gets sick in the hospital bed, like they just can't be together yeah. for some whatever reason. They just can't be together. So, yeah, it's just. A theme that would continue until the end of the game, funny enough.
0: Yeah. Now, I wrote down here uh, to do my best Stephen A. Smith voice. (laughs) However, M M had communicated uh, with Mio during that boss fight, the one where uh, she's taking control of your party members. Evidently, they worked this out so that they're going to swap bodies, basically, and M hated her situation so much, hated what Anne had made her do so much, she was looking for a way out. And this was her opportunity. So she swapped bodies uh, in order uh, to make herself able to die. And Mio was swapped into the console's body. And immediately I was like, Oh, those conversations in the prison cell, it makes so much sense. Because that wasn't Mio, that was M. She wanted to die. That's why she was so at peace with everything going on. And it's it's a, it was just a beautiful, like, that's great. I love that. I love what they did here.
1: Yeah, this isn't JRPG nonsense. This is great writing, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. So, like, yeah, like you said, there is cutscenes scenes, a specific cut scene where M is doing the mind control thing and hits Mio, but, like, both of their eyes, like, glow big. And, like, that's the moment, like, it shows you later on, that's the moment when M is showing Mio the memory, like, what happened as well. Like, you're seeing the other side of the coin with the N and M situation, the N and Noah situation, excuse me. but Yeah. Yeah, this was a great reveal. This works 100% for me. This isn't just some cop out buyout way to keep Mio alive. This to me 100% works. Now I have to ask you, and I wanted to ask you this is the question I've been dying to ask you long hair or short hair? Long hair. My this, man.
0: <laughs> this is a new version of Mio. Got to be long hair. My man. This is, <laughs> this is what characters in, uh, in stories like this do. When it's new me, time for a haircut or new hairstyle
1: that scene was great too. And she's going over like the pros and cons of each other. That was funny.
0: Yeah. So you have a nice little conversation here where Mio um, explains to N why this happened. Basically saying like, this is your fault. You did all of this thing. You ruined my life. I hated you this entire time. Um, and he predictably just loses his shit. You have a boss fight against him boss fight against the queen, another robot queen, uh, whatever. Um, they try to blow up the city and sword March. Uh, but again, M was doing stuff behind the scenes, um, had warned them ahead of time. Uh, Shania kills herself, whatever, get out sick. Um, and then I kind of like fast forward to, um, the end when you go to origin. Uh, cause after okay. that you have some conversations with Nia that are pretty interesting, but, just sticking to the parts that I thought were the coolest uh, was going straight to origin. Was there anything else?
1: I mean, the only thing I put in my notes was this is where you unlock the unlimited sword and origin blade um, yeah. final arts for it for standard Noah and Ouroboros forms. And I do think that something really cool about the story is that Lucky Seven is both canonically and in gameplay just broken at all levels. So I think it's cool that they stayed true to that like norm or tradition like okay this is broken this has been explained by riku this weapon is so powerful in canon you hardly do you ever really see that in gameplay you see it in gameplay in this game which is really cool
0: yep pretty cool and you know for a game that mechanically i took a big shit on earlier um it is kind of cool to unlock like at least like i unlock an ability to just tear through some stuff you know later on Mm -hmm. so that was kind of cool um anyway going to origin uh which is where zed is hanging out um you meet n again Uh, he has just totally snapped he thinks he's a god um i thought he was a a lot less compelling during this section earlier when you're at the public execution and then later he kind of redeems it but during this part i was like oh okay so he's just maniacal anime villain now
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think he I think he's I don't think he's as meant to be as compelling here than he was before. Like I think it's just just, this guy's completely he's lost everything. He has no purpose. Back to the whole purpose of life question. He gave up everything to live eternity with Mio, and now he doesn't have Mio, so he is just a completely snapped, lost his mind. But when you do beat him in battle, he does him and Noah do have a great conversation where Noah's like, I would probably choose the exact same thing and ends like you would, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Like that's just I think that was great kind of pushes you him in the direction of his redemption arc and you free Melia words that never reach you is the track here. A great, just a great, um, storytelling through like audio songwriting, like this tragic battle theme as you're fighting end cause he is just completely lost it. He's, there's no coming back for him. You think? Yeah. Yeah. Just great stuff here. I think, um, from a gameplay and, you know, song perspective, great, um, story building.
2: Yeah.
0: And then it continues. you, Basically, you have cutscenes and stuff leading up to this fight against Zed. You go through Origin, which is a huge dungeon. Went on way too long, I think. But um I entered Origin and I sent I it might have been you, might have been someone else, just being like, Hey, what level were you for the final boss? I think it was you. And you told me and I was like, Ooh, that's pretty high. But Origin leveled me up like fifteen times, and I was just fine <laughs> yeah. for the final boss. Yeah, it's um, crazy. Long ass dungeon. So uh, you get through and you you have this final face off against Zed. Um, it's really cool because in the early parts of the fight, you're fighting him, and then there's this assault on Origin from all your friends and both of the queens and stuff, and their their giant mechs and everything. Really visually cool. There is a a moment during one of the cutscenes, like during one of these fights, that is like one of the most striking visual things I've ever seen in a Xenoblade game uh, where it's like a, a kaleidoscope of sorts. It's this uh, dark red background with these blue streaks going across it. Noah and Mio like staring into the void almost. I think this is when the sacrifice happens. If I remember. Yeah.
1: And right. an N and M sacrifice themselves. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um, so they have to sacrifice themselves to destroy Zed. Um, I, I think you explained this to me a couple of days ago and I, I must not have written it down why they had to sacrifice themselves. I'm going to
1: be honest. I, I don't really know. Um, okay. I don't know why they had to sacrifice themselves. Maybe because like they were so connected to the endless now. I don't, I, I don't know, to be
0: honest. It, it's possible because again, Zed's not a person. Zed it's is true. a, He's like a desire entity. personified, made human basically. So, you could basically make up any reason for why. Um, and it would probably make enough sense to be like, sure, they have to sacrifice themselves. Just a little bit of redemption for N after everything that's happened. Um, it's nice. And then we get to the ending, which the end of chapter five, fucked me up. The, the ending here fucked me up too. This is, uh, this is rough. Cause you thought you were going to get a happy ending and all this time, I had lost track of the fact that these worlds are in stasis. Me too. And as soon as I remembered that, I was like, Oh, what happens when stasis is broken? Things start moving again.
1: Yeah. Um, just the ending does such a good job of making you forget about like what's actually going on. And like, as you're fighting Zed, you kind of start to figure it out. So, Oh my God, that just makes, just makes this ending brutal, like a brutal ending. But, I think it's better than a happier ending. I really do. I think you want to leave your mark. I think this is how you do it.
0: Yeah. I've said many times on the show, probably deep in spoiler sections, but I love downer endings or bittersweet endings that you weren't expecting. I love it. So like, I love this ending. I just thought that there was going to be a happy ending because yeah. Anyway, I was going to say something. I'll keep it to myself. Um, So what happens is uh, you break the stasis by defeating Zed and the world start to drift apart again. And you have um, a couple of scenes where the, the crew is talking to each other. And they're saying their goodbyes because they know this is happening too. Um, Noah and Mio kiss. Nia opens up a, a hatch and Poppy runs out. She's the robot, the French made robot from Xenoblade 2. Uh, she runs out. She's happy to see Nia again. Nia holds up a picture of the Xenoblade Chronicles 2 cast. And that was like a sharp picture stab in my heart because I love that game so much. Um, <laughs> and I had some questions about how many babies are in that picture. Like what is, what's Rex been doing? But, uh, that's a conversation for, uh, for later. Um, nothing like that for the Xenoblade Chronicles one crew, no mention of them at all. As far as I know, which is weird.
1: Yeah. Um, the only reference I could find is that there's a statue in the city of a founder who looks a lot like Shulk.
2: Okay.
0: But no, like no picture, similar scene no reference. where Melia looks at a picture yeah. of Shulk and Dunban and all of them. You know,
1: yeah, no, Melia just doesn't give a fuck. I guess.
0: <laughs> I you know honestly, I forget how that game ends. So maybe uh, there's some uh, reason for that. Um,
1: I, I can't really think of one. No, because in Future Connected, which is one year after Definitive Edition, Noah and Melia, or not Noah, Shulk and Melia, are the primary party members there. So okay. I don't know. I don't know why.
0: Fair enough. Well, uh, we still see that. Also, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 has this weird, I don't know if it's DLC, but there's like a, you go through like a portal or something and Shulk is there. He's like stuck and you, you have to do like these combat challenges. I never did them because they weren't very fun, but maybe that's why maybe Shulk is still stuck there. He's trapped in a parallel dimension. <laughs> um, But back to the ending, the world's, actually start to drift apart. You see this happening and the parties are separated and they, they're trying to run and catch up to each other. Like they had said like their goodbyes and made peace with it. But as soon as it started moving, they're like, Oh no, like we got to go catch up to them." And it's, um, it's, it's a really beautiful scene. Obviously they can't catch them and the world's drift apart. And I believe They yell something to the effect of like, you know, we'll join up again someday. We'll find a way to meet you again. And that's the end. Uh, And it's not the happy ending we expected, but I I really like this. It was a really, it was a really obvious, like this ending makes a lot of sense in the story. And just from an emotional level, I I like an ending like this too. How about you?
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, Bittersweet, sad. Not happy. Definitely fit the agenda for this ending, but I mean, this is how you leave an impact on a player. Um You don't give them the happy ending you want. Continuing with the theme of like, no, and Mio for some reason just can't ever be together. Happy, happily ever after that just happens mm-hmm. again. But now it's like permanent. I think Ania says like, I'll see you like real soon to either the entire cast or just the Agnes crew. Cause the Agnes crew is two. Cavessi's one. I don't know, but it's just like, oh man, it's, it's a killer than the song with the lyrics plays. Um, I forget what it's called. I have it in my notes here. But yeah, just a perfectly one more gut punch to send you off on your way. But so as you're just crying through as you watch the credits roll.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a really affecting ending. And then it continues. So after the credits, you have a scene where the opening cutscene, the one where time froze... Uh, When young Noah was running around, Um, time is restored in that. So the endless now is over. The stasis is over and you see Noah out with Lance. Lance tells him to hurry up or he'll miss the fireworks. So he starts running, but then he hears uh, Mio's offseer flute melody in the distance and he chooses not to follow his friends and walks toward that instead. So what do you make of this? I love
1: your theory in the notes, to be honest. And I kind of hope that's true. Because there's a lot of questions, right? Like, how do we know these characters are going to exist at the same times when the stasis is broken? Like, there's a bunch of different questions like that to be, like, how much do the queens know? Like, a bunch of questions that are left unanswered. And I assume DLC will attempt to tackle a couple of them. Yeah. The expansion pass, which is the story won't come out until next year. But I I love your theory. So I'll give you the floor here because I'm all in on this.
0: Yeah, I had assumed that this constructed world that the game took place in was going to end up being like a dream to the characters there, or it is literally a constructed world and when it winks out of existence, the real versions of the characters are not going to remember it. It's just going to be, not that it's not real, like things that happened are real, but these versions of the characters didn't experience that. But that's not the case because Noah knows the song and he goes off to do it. Now, the, the theory I got, this is from watching a, uh, a video about it. And I didn't I didn't notice this. Did you notice that during that scene when Noah's following it, he disappears?
1: Not until I read your notes. Yeah, but I went back and watched him like, oh, yeah, he like takes two steps. And then he just kind of quickly blips out and then it zooms out. Yeah. Quickly. Some,
0: I think it's like some birds fly across the camera. Yeah, and when he's gone, gone yeah. Noah's gone, too. Uh, so the theory that I'm choosing to like accept as, like, at least this would be cool if it's the case is that he interlinks, uh, with Mio in that, yeah, that... instant. Which don't ask me to try to explain how, but like you said, I think that this is going to be something that DLC attempts to explore or DLC would explore a continuation of this story if it's like. Future Connected, I think, which is a continuation of Xenoblade 1's story, right? The thing is, though, and I don't know why this matters to me, but Xenoblade 2's DLC is bigger, but it's a prequel. That being said, Xenoblade 2's story has characters that need backstory fleshed out, and I think that's why they did a prequel. I would be shocked if Xenoblade 3 DLC is not a continuation.
1: I think it can go either way, because I think you have the founders in the city that can, you know, you can do storyline there too because there's a lot of theories out there that Shulk and Rex are two of the six founders and then mm. like the original Noah, obviously. So just like the just the fever dream of having the three of them in the same party, I guess, for like Xeno yeah. junkies is enticing. But I don't know how much story you can do there because we know that End burned the original city down and you know, all the founders died essentially. So mm. I am much more interested, I'm with you, I am much more interested in figuring out do Noah, Mio, the entire party exist at the same time? How much do they remember, if anything? What do the queens know? How does that play into this? I, I, honest to God, I just want a world-building DLC. I don't even need a villain, <laughs> to be honest. I don't want more combat. Yeah. I just want to explore the
0: world. Because um, I don't know how long Future Connected was. I didn't play it. But Torna for Xenoblade 2 is like a 30-hour game. Like, it is a... Holy it's shit. its own ass game. So if this one is similar... That's a lot of space for storytelling and to continue this and either get a resolution or set up Xenoblade Chronicles 4 whatever they want to do with it.
1: Yeah, Future Connecteds I want to say like 8-10 hours. It's it's long, but it's not 30. That's a lot. Yeah.
0: Torna Torna is so big that you can buy it by itself. You don't even need to own Xenoblade 2. That's that's incredible. <laughs> um but it's really good too.
1: Okay, I'll definitely look into it, but I think that this DLC needs to put a bow on this story because we're not getting mm-hmm. any more after this DLC is done. And I think that Xenoblade Chronicles 4, whatever they call it, is going to be something entirely new and different from from the ground up. So yeah, I would much rather see them attempt to tie a bow on the story that we know and that we played versus doing any sort of prequel or some sequel way down the line. I don't need Shulk and Rex in the DLC, to be honest. I have their no. games. I can play through them.
0: It would, honestly, it would be a little bit, cheesy and too fan servicey i think to i agree. just be like here's the power trio they're all together
1: yeah I, I, it'd be cool to watch them talk to each other and stuff like that but i'm not i'm not playing i want to play xenoblade chronicles 3 dlc to find out what happens with the characters of xenoblade chronicles 3 that's what i want yeah
0: exactly couldn't agree more um one idea i just had for dlc though if they do go the prequel route what if you play through um ends story and the end of it is and oh, making a choice.
1: That'd be cool. I would like that because, like, it's kind of like a crisis core thing where you know the end of it is just going to be yeah. like, Zach dies. But the end of this is that end burns the city down. That'd be kind of exactly. cool. I like that a lot. Uh, that'd be the only prequel I'm really interested in, um, honestly, because that again, that's just way more interesting than like Shulk, Rex, and Noah being like, "Oh, hey, we're all friends." Let's. It's like a sitcom at that point. I'd much rather have a Xenoblade Chronicles three rooted DLC. And I think that's what we're going to get.
0: Yeah. I hope so too. There's one last story note, uh, because we can't end on kind of that end of that hopeful ending when Noah runs off, uh, after hearing the melody, then you get one final, uh, diary entry from Neo. She's been writing these diaries at the end of each chapter. And this one just basically, sows a little seeds of doubt where at least puts a little time pressure on it. Cause she says that her memories of Noah are getting fuzzy, uh, but she promises she won't forget. And that was, it's very short, but that one also right in the heart, I was like, Oh man, this, they better figure something out fast.
1: Yeah. Just again, one more, one more stake driven through the heart as if Dracula hasn't had enough already, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, yeah, just perfect. Just a perfect bow on the, you know, somber story that this game told, I mm-hmm. just stuff like that. You don't really look into it. Mio's diary entries have been, I, I appreciated them as kind of like chapter recaps almost and like chapter previews. Obviously you don't get one in chapter five, which I think is very powerful. I don't think you get one in chapter five, but that's very powerful. But yeah, this last diary is just, ugh, just one more gut punch for you. And then this was one of those games where like when the title screen came back up, I just like sat there and stared at it. Like I didn't yeah. know what to do.
0: It's a lot to process. You have a lot of things that just happened and you need to work your way through it. I need a a drink. Like God. Yep. I guess the last thing, and this is, I'm going to bring this up without spoiling Xenoblade Chronicles two for you, but there's a criticism of this game that it's not a good wrap up for the series or kind of sequel in the line here. Thank you rookie for that. I appreciate your input buddy. Um and obviously you didn't play Xenoblade 2, but I will just tell you that Xenoblade 1 and 2 are two halves of a whole. They fit together extremely nicely. And I've heard people's criticisms of this as a sequel to those and saying that this is a bad sequel and I don't understand it. I think this is an excellent way to because like those like I said, those two fit together perfectly. They're interlocking puzzle pieces. And then this one is a transition away from those. We have had our references to the stories of 1 and 2, characters of 1 and 2. We're talking about the fates of the worlds there, but not like the individual stories within those. Now we have a new cast of characters that we are dealing with in Xenoblade 3 and maybe beyond. Who knows? I don't really understand the, like... The criticism of this as a part in the Xenoblade series, I think this is really good.
1: Here's my take on it. I I'll take your word for it, and I don't. I have no reason not believe you that the Xenoblade One and Two are kind of like perfect, perfectly meshed together in their endings. I think this game is more about the story of Takahashi wrapping up more than the story of Xenoblade Chronicles Three wrapping up. And for me, someone made this point on another podcast I listened to that when Noah throws Lucky Seven into the ocean. Mm-hmm. that kind of feels like a farewell to this entire trilogy of story uh-huh. and that that is takahashi being like it's over i'm done like i did it and then the scene of like noah and, and noah and Mio sharing the kiss and that entire like Tyon writing the cookbook and kavesi ink and giving it to uni like it, that that's like a thank you to the fans for like waiting for so long and you know just playing this out and you know, being so appreciative that people got into this and were so passionate about it. To me, the entire ending, although it is a great wrap up for Xenoblade Chronicles 3 and those characters in that world, it feels more of a personal ending to the journey that Takahashi himself went on to tell Mm -hmm. this story. And that's why I think it works so well and is so emotionally gripping. And one of those games you think about long after you beat it.
2: Yeah.
0: I have not played to the end of Xenogears, but I've heard enough people that I think are very intelligent and know what they're talking about. Say that this is Takahashi's completed attempt at telling the story he first tried to tell in Xenogears, that I trust that. Like I trust Mm -hmm. that read of it, that this is yes, telling this story too, but this is um, kind of completing that thing that he's been trying to do for the last 25 years, basically, uh, and more. Uh, So I get, yeah, I definitely see that.
1: This feels like the culmination of like his life's work.
0: Yeah. And I mean, 25 years to be working on these games and go through as much as, um, as much as they have, cause the development of Xenogears gears was not easy. The development of Xeno saga, that was not easy from what I can tell these Xenoblade games. I don't know that they had like significant development trouble, but these are long games. This is a lot of work to do these and to try to tell these stories. Um, so this has made me interested to go back and try to pick up Xenogears again. It is, a, is an old ass JRPG, and it's got <laughs> a lot of those things in it. Um, but I trust enough people like Rick uh, from Pixel Project Radio. Um, he loves that game. I trust his opinions about games and uh, things that he thinks are interesting is maybe want to pick it back up, seeing the end of this, seeing the way the story ties up, seeing how this fits in the Xenoblade Chronicles, like trio trilogy. That's the word. I think this is a really good capstone to it. It, if we never got any more story resolution for Noah and Mio, we would just have that little wisp of hope at the end. That would be cool with me. And if they do want to continue Xenoblade Chronicles 4 telling the story of these two groups trying to reunite or something, I'm in for that too. I had some struggles going through this game, but the ending and then looking at the whole trilogy as a whole, I'm back in on Xenoblade.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, 100%. I am. I mean, I, ha- I had to have two after I finished this game because I'm like, okay, it's, just, it's no quinky dink that one and three are really good games. Like two has to be on the same level. And hearing you praise it so highly, has me very excited to get into that whenever I get the chance. But yeah, I mean, Xenoblade Chronicles, like that trilogy, I mean, for Nintendo's got to be like up there, up there, as far as like just video games go. And I'm just JRPGs, but yeah, I'm all in on Xenoblade. Whatever they do next, I am all ears and open for. Um, It's probably going to be a while because now they're working from the ground up, presumably. So yeah, it's going to be a long wait, but You know what? I think that this trilogy is—it's a hell of an accomplishment in just game and just direction and just like game development. So, kudos to Monolith Soft. I mean, you probably one probably one of Nintendo's best studios, honestly. But Mm -hmm. and kudos to you guys and to Tetsuya Takashi. Like what incredible job on not just this game but the whole the whole trilogy as a whole
0: hundred percent. And kudos to you, Colby. This is, um, by the time I add in music to this episode, we'll, we'll be coming up on three hours. So thank you for sticking this out with me, man. This has been the conversation that I wanted uh, to have about this. So I appreciate you coming on, taking all this time to chat about Xenoblade 3 with me. Good times, man.
1: I, uh, again, I appreciate it so much for, for being considered and thank you so much for having me on. Like I said, it's, it's, it really is an honor and I really do appreciate all of your hard work. It doesn't go unnoticed. Not just with me, but with the entire community as well. This has been a lot of fun. I've been dying to get into this conversation. And yeah, anytime you want to have me back on, man, just let me know.
0: Yeah, definitely. So thanks again, dude. And to everybody listening who's made it this far, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate you as always. Tune in next week for the next game that comes out of the backlog.